the next section that I wanted to touch on is, okay. Um, all right, so I wanna just touch a little bit about on this next-gen nuclear. So again, they talk a lot about the oligarchs, like all these problems with the oligarchs doing all the stuff. And uh, my question is like, what counts as an oligarch? I think they imagine that it's like some, you know, the, the royal family and or the London bankers or whatever, but we have our own oligarchs, they're tech oligarchs, and they're the ones investing in next-gen nuclear. So uh, here's, here's an article uh, from 20, March of 2022. Investors like nuclear. Uh, venture funding for startups focused on nuclear energy spiked last year. And it, it goes from like a tiny amount in 2020. I mean, I don't know, it's it's so much higher. I can't even, It's I guess it's from like under, well under a, like a billion dollars to almost 3 billion, like tripled, more than tripled in, in one year. And so that's, again, that's from Nuclear Newswire. Um, and they're saying uh, pro-nuclear actions. Uh, Chapman highlights the recent pro-nuclear actions of a number of prominent tech leaders, including how, quote, Elon Musk wrote on Twitter that nuclear is critical to national security, while the risk of radiation is overplayed. Chapman also cites investor and software engineer Mark Andreessen calling for 1,000 new state-of-the-art nuclear power plants in the U.S. and Europe right now. And he did that on Joe Rogan, and that's something that, that Jason and uh, Lynn and I, we did a deconstruction about the Andreessen-Rogan uh, interview, and that was one of the key things that we, we talked about. And these, this 1,000 uh, nuclear plants it comes actually goes all the way back to Nixon and uh, Nixon like pivoting being both the environmental like setting up the EPA and also pushing nuclear but th that didn't actually happen uh, his power plants uh, another one of the reasons behind the push for nuclear is again the the war between Russia and Ukraine uh, and the concerns around climate change and then it's talking about, uh, the attraction of venture capital due to technological innovation, including advances in fusion. Um, Silicon Valley has been the foundation of the entire private fusion industry. Fusion startup Helion is another example, having raised $570 million from Silicon Valley investors. Uh, and then it's, it's going on saying, not surprisingly, we're seeing the most interest from places bordering Russia and relying on them for energy. So, you know, Jason did that really nice write-up about how the, the war between Russia and Ukraine uh, is advancing all sorts of technological developments. And clearly the, the next gen nuclear is, is one of those as well. Um, and uh, so, you know, again, they mentioned Mark Andreessen. So here's something from Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, it's a profile called American Dynamism 50, and it's like their top 50 companies, uh, companies kickstarting American renewal. And, um, you know, affordable childcare, reusable rockets, unsnarled supply chain, sustainable farming, clean energy, accessible housing. These companies are tackling the nation's stickiest challenges. Um, and, you know, it includes a, like a number of nuclear. And this is all going to be the Web3, sort of the interconnected world framed as addressing social problems. Uh, in this article, they were talking about the importance of nuclear, that they provide 8,000 times more power than fossil fuels. Um, two thirds of the states say nuclear energy will take the help take the place of fossil fuel, and that funding for fusion research 
uh, more than doubled between 2021 and 2022 to 4.8 billion. So there's a ton of money going into this. So this idea that somehow that this is a, this little put upon industry that no one is paying attention to and they just can't get a break, that that's not accurate because the, the richest people in the world are pushing next gen nuclear now. So here's one of the companies, Radiant, uh, is one of them. These, this is this modular nuclear. I'm going to talk about this a little bit. Uh, developing portable nuclear micro reactors to replace diesel generators. And, um, you know, a lot of that is about refugee situations or, uh, you know, temporary pop up. You can fly them in and fly them out. Uh, Commonwealth Fusion is scaling fusion energy in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then we've got Last Energy, accelerating nuclear power development in DC. It is an impact center, a climate-focused research institute. So, you know, it's very clear to me that next-gen nuclear is being posed as green. I mean, and all that, I mean, what they have to do is to get the people who are on the the, the woke uh, climate, carbon climate investing thing, like to either create enough of a crisis or enough of a story to get them on board and to overcome any uh, latent concerns about the nuclear stuff. So, um, again, I just want to mention Going back to this, that we've got, um, you know, at this Mormon transhumanist event, you know, we, we have a Mark Andreessen, former employee uh, in Tamika Tilleman, and, and they are the ones that are doing the investments. Uh, the small scale reactors. So I'm just going to actually play this this clip. This is from uh, Mr. Mehmet, who was at the Mormon Transhumanist Conference, and he's talking about uh, the development of molten salt micro reactors. And this is what they're hoping to get off the ground. Now, I have to say, and somebody left a comment like, hey, that's a pretty good salesperson, like looks not, looks pretty good to me. And um, it, it says, uh, it, it describes it's very safe, uh, little waste. Uh, test proven concept at Oak Ridge National Lab, low operating cost, three years of continuous output without refueling or human monitoring, uh, fits into a 40-foot uh, uh, shipping container, constructed off-site and deployed anywhere, suitable for electric and thermal applications. So they're, they're saying that they want to be the Model T of clean energy. Um, you know, and again, I... It sounds good, but at the same time, you know, it's it's being pitched literally at the Mormon Transhumanist Association conference. So what does that mean? Like, is this what we're going to run our smart villages on for our cyber physical technical systems? And we we hook up our digital identities, our digital wallets. And um, is I mean, this could be really nice or it could be really black mirror. Right. And so these are the these are the concerns that I have that I want to talk about. And like I would be curious what Fox and Matthew Eret think about this being presented literally at the Mormon Transhumanist Conference when everything that they're proposing is is in opposition to uh, transhumanism. So I'm, I'll just play this. People have said, well, let's decentralize and have Web 3.0 and distributed systems so we don't have to worry about one centralized location providing all of our information. The problem is, is if you knock out that one power plant, you still lose all of your capacity for having any kind of information or distributed systems. So really, the solution is to distribute everything, to have small, decentralized power. Not only that, this allows for a more economic solution. When you look at new nuclear plants, part of the reason why people are really hesitant when we look at the light water reactors, 
An AP-1000, which is the most recently licensed and built reactor in the U.S., they're building them right now in South Carolina, was $30 billion to build. There are so few entities in the country that have the capital to be able to build that, and it leads to the situation that we heard talked about this morning, where we have centralized authorities doing these kinds of things. On the flip side, what we have been working really hard to do is to become the Model T of nuclear reactors, and that means no longer doing light water reactor technology, rather using these molten salt thorium reactors that don't make waste, that can't melt down, and that we can actually make much more economical by having small distributed power. What you see here in the top left is actually the entire system. That is an entire power plant that fits in a truck bed and that services a thousand homes. So you can take one of these incredibly small footprint truck beds and you can actually place them directly where you need the power and have a truly, for the first time, decentralized, reliable, high power network. In fact, they're very modular. If you wanted to power a city like New York, you could stack 100 of these together. Perhaps some of the other great benefits these salt reactors operate at such a high temperature that by the time you're done making electricity, the salt is still hot enough that you can use the leftover to be able to pump and desalinate water, to send heat out to other industries. And so I just want to mention on the desalinate water, because I think that's something that comes up a lot. Um, again, think about what I mentioned previously about the graphene uh, filtration systems being used for desalinization and what might be going on with like water programming with uh, graphene filtration and to provide district heating for everybody nearby. So in theory, you could take one of these reactors, you could park it under a park in a brand new city development of about four or five blocks square, and you would be able to... To me, that sounds like opportunity zones, right? <laughs> that sounds like something that you would put in a poor black neighborhood that has been redlined and now is being gentrified with luxury apartments. Um, that, that would be that thing. To provide that city electricity, power, water, heating, and any industrial resources you need at about half the cost of natural gas today. I'm curious if you guys imagine that Adam Newman and Mark Andreessen may be having all of this on their radar for their flow life programs for their mixed use development. It sounds to me very likely that this would be something that they would have their eyes on. It's just absolutely mind boggling how well these things can work. So why don't we have them yet? Really, it comes down to the regulation. One last thing I wanted to bring up really quickly before we finish. This is your superpowers, everybody. And that is a new technology for cancer treatment. Sloan Kettering, about 20 years ago, developed a technology they call targeted alpha therapy, where you take somebody's antibody and you tune it to travel to a cancer cell. The problem is our antibodies are not capable of destroying cancer cells. So what they did is they attached a radioisotope, meaning an isotope that after about 45 minutes would give off an alpha particle, a bowling ball, and that would be enough to destroy just the nearby cancer cells. This was so effective in their initial studies that the success rate was 90% plus. People who were on death's door with three treatments were in complete remission of their cancer. That's amazing. Why don't we do this today? Turns out that perfect isotope we needed is only made with thorium. And the way they got theirs was the thorium reactor that Alvin Weinberg ran back in the 1960s.
So this technology really does represent, in my opinion, the future of energy, but has side benefits that are wide-reaching. For example, providing the materials for doctors and cancer treaters to be able to really have the most effective treatment for cancer we've ever seen. All right. And so I just want to point out the whole situation with cancer because I think we all have some concerns about rising cancer rates, right? And so again, you create the problem to create the solution that you want. And, you know, as I've, I've mentioned yesterday in my read aloud with uh, of cosmic humanism on radio eugenics, this idea of regular chemotherapeutic treatments to maintain populations in a certain mindset, that was, that was, written about by Ira Levin in This Perfect Day back in the early 1970s. So, you know, you can fly in your little modular nuclear reactor and then, you know, it comes with the side benefit of, you know, topping you off with your radioisotopes. So, summary, we need distributed power systems if we want to have distributed information and if we want to have the blockchain type societies that we're talking about. The blockchain type societies we're talking about. We need distributed power. And I want to emphasize that. This is the smart village. This is what we have to think about. Like, do we want to live in a distributed power smart village with socio-technical cyber-physical systems? Because I don't think we've got given a lot of consideration to that. Nuclear power has incredible potential, but also some challenges. But when we talk about molten salt reactors, that technology has already been proven and it doesn't make weapons, it doesn't make waste, and it can't melt down. And so companies like Alphatech and maybe half a dozen others in the US are trying to commercialize this technology. What's the barrier? The regulation barrier is high. We're trying to prove every part of this will work in every possible situation and that takes time. But when we do that, in my opinion, molten salt reactor technology represents reliable, clean energy that can be the future of energy that will support the systems that we're talking about here. And the systems they were talking about are blockchain systems. Remember that that was the topic of the conference, the Mormon Transhumanist Association 2022 conference on blockchain. And so what blockchain communities need for cyber-physical socio-technical systems are next-gen nuclear modular salt reactors. So I guess this is, this one isn't in a, this is, this is bigger. This is a person. So this isn't the kind that's going to like fit in a, in a uh, cargo container, uh, but small modular reactors explained. I mean, there's just an infinite number, uh, how to speed up the rollout of small nuclear power plants. Uh, this is in Bloomberg. Uh, 2022. Uh, it's interesting. It says uh, carbon-free energy. Uh, let's see. These offer the promise of carbon-free energy and could back up the ebbs and flows of renewable power in clean grids of the future. So again, that's kind of what Fox was talking about previously, um, that they, uh, you know, about supplementing wind and solar because it, it, wind and solar on, on their own aren't going to cut it. As Russia's war in Ukraine galvanizes Western countries to break their reliance on Russian energy exports, in part by accelerating green technologies that will replace fossil fuels, one solution could be boosting the deployment of nuclear energy. Again, so handy to have a war driving your program. Uh, now, there is a, an article that came out uh, last June by M.V. Ramana, a Simmons Chair in Disarmament, uh, 
I, I can't remember exactly where it's, it's from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. And it, it says molten salt reactors were trouble in the 1960s and they remain trouble today. And essentially saying that even the one at Oak Ridge didn't work the way they imagine it working. And it's not a proven concept. Um, you know, and it, he goes into like quite a bit more detail about that. So, you know, it's hard for me as a, as a lay person to uh, make any kind of informed guess as to who is telling the accurate story, if it's the uh, BYU uh, Model T nuclear um, react, molten salt reactor people, or if it's the other atomic scientists who say these thorium reactors were never that good. Um, it's hard for me to say. Like, I, I, it's hard for me to even weigh in on that. Um, let's see. I just, I want to touch on a couple other things. So Steffers sent this along to me a while back. She was really uh, keyed in on this idea of the Lake Mead, the drought. Um, and again, it feeling like, uh, you know, a constructed problem waiting for a solution. Uh, and one of the solutions being posed, uh, and, and this is interesting. This is an article called an interstate water system could fix the West's water woes. We have pipelines for oil and gas. Why not water? Uh, this is an article about creating an interstate water system. And it's interesting. I, I think what she pointed out, which was quite something when I, I looked at it more closely, uh, the authors are a, a Joseph Shulman and John Schaefer and a Henry Miller. And so at the end of the article, it says who these people are, uh, who are interested in a, in a water system. Now, remember, we've been talking about water programmings. And the idea of this interstate water system, you know, they, they write an extensive article about it. You can imagine, you know, they, they want to create this large infrastructure project. Um, and again, even like Matthew Arrett, he's all about like good infrastructure, right, uh, for flourishing. Um, so these are the authors of this, this paper. Joseph Shulman, MD, a scientist, former professor and chairman of genetics and IVF Institute, like uh, IVF Fertility, who lives in the American East, and West, and John P. Schaefer, PhD, a chemist and former president of the University of Arizona and chairman of Re-H-New, Renew Incorporated. Now, the University of Arizona is where uh, Stuart Hameroff was doing all of his consciousness work and is a center of uh, optics and, and uh, astronomy. And then Henry Miller, a physician and molecular biologist and a senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute, which is like, I guess, a California free market uh, conservative research program. So these three men, uh, a geneticist with interest in uh, IVF uh, fertility stuff, uh, the former Arizona University of Arizona president and a molecular biologist at a conservative free market think tank are all getting together for a water interstate program. So thanks, Steffers, for the heads up on that. These are just some, some pictures of who this, this is. Um, uh, there's Shulman, again, the Genetics and IVF Institute. Uh, and let's see. Let's see. It says... He served as consultant to numerous academic and research institutions, has produced 500 original contributions to medical literature, and had affiliate professorships at the College of Medicine of Virginia Commonwealth and additional teaching at UC San Diego. One of the well, well known as one of the pioneers in the creation of specialties of assisted reproduction in prenatal genetics. And again, um, we, we need to think about eugenics in all of this because IVF leads itself, like it goes down to eugenics eugenics because there's genetic screening often of like which eggs get implanted. And then we have uh, Paul Schaefer, 
uh, former uh, president of the University of Arizona in Tucson, which I visited. Uh, he taught chemistry at, the, at UC Berkeley and uh, was helped grow the University of Arizona, approving its participation in the multiple mirror telescope. Uh, he was also a, a lead in uh, the Research Corporation in from 1988 to 2004 and helped fund the large binocular telescope project on Mount Graham. He was also a, evidently an amateur photographer who liked to take pictures of cacti. And then we've got this Hoover fellow, uh, Miller, uh, the Pacific Research Institute, California's leading free market think tank. And, and Miller was involved in a broad spectrum of scientific uh, medical issues, including gene, genetic engineering and the development of prescription drugs and precision medicine, junk science and regulatory reform. So I don't know. I guess we should watch out. Maybe he'll be drafted into the RFK Jr. campaign. <laughs> um, and, and then so this seems a bit out there, but I, this Steffer shared this with me and I, I don't really know. There's It's a blog of this guy, Len Bilen, who I think is originally Swedish. And his whole thing is about these uh, thorium reactors and proposing um, a transcontinental aqueduct uh, in the Southwest. Uh, so Len Bilen, like it seems a bit flaky, but it's, it's not worth putting out of the realm of possibility. He's talking about developing this interstate water infrastructure using these liquid fluoride uh, thorium reactors uh, to help with the pumping and supplement uh, the uh, solar and wind power and that to, to help pump the water. So uh, you can see how they can create problems and then to which these these modular nuclear reactors will be their, their wonderful solution. Um, you know, I here I have a dot about like just the energy crisis uh, bringing about the need uh, for this alternative energy system. And I think the crypto, this idea of crypto and blockchain, the mining, even though they've gone, you know, they've shifted over to proof of stake away from proof of work, um, that I think that that the the technology infrastructure that is required, this very energy intensive is going to drive nuclear. And I wrote a whole piece about this Um uh, UPenn's nuclear green, green sin bio blockchain web of impact. Um, you know, and, and part of the reason I ended up writing this was that there was this guy uh, at Penn, a Penn Annenberg PhD, and uh, Zane Griffith, Tally Cooper, and you know, essentially he was looking into uh, energy systems and crypto mining in, I think it was I Greenland, I think in Greenland, and uh, but from what I could tell, it seemed like they were definitely going to be setting up. Uh, nuclear as the answer to sort of green crypto. And, uh, and, and then Penn was very involved in that, in their uh, energy systems and, uh, you know, linking it to climate change, Penn, you know, which is where I'm based, uh, or in Philadelphia, uh, is to this Kleinman Energy Center. And it was funded by the Apollo Institute. Let me just see here. Uh, Apollo yeah, I walked by, like there was an event and I walked by, uh, yeah, Scott Kleiman, uh, he was the president of Apollo Global Management Venture Capital. And uh, Apollo is also very uh, integral in ESG finance. And, you know, they, they were just touting how they were all about ESG. But again, uh, one of their uh, seminars that they were promoting was nuclear energy meets climate change, revitalizing nuclear energy to decarbonize, uh, to de revitalizing nuclear energy to decarbonize electricity in the U.S., and that was in 2021.
so nuclear is very central to decarbonization. And um, I just have a few other things. A Carnegie Endowment for Peace. Again, we've got, you know, the peace people and they're talking about shutting down Nord Stream marks the point of no return for Russian gas. So, you know, I guess we need to start, you know, pushing in the direction of nuclear. Uh, I wrote another piece kind of uh, exposing these crypto skeptics. What stage are we on? Immersive storytelling, Hegelian dialectic, and crypto spectacle. And in that, one of the presenters was this guy, uh, Peter Housen, uh, who was talking about, again, the, the cost of energy costs to crypto mining and Ethereum and talking about how to, how to green it. And this was at the time that things were transitioning to proof of stake, uh, but coming up with, with green uh green Web3 technologies. And I think that the nuclear stuff, especially if you look at Andreessen Horowitz's ties in the space, is going to be going to be part of that. Um, let's see, we've got China. <laughs> you know, China was doing an early testing. This is from August 2022, that they're they're getting ready to start up their own molten salt reactor. So of course, uh, Eret is, is very, you know, pro BRICS, pro China in the space. Uh, then we've got uh, yeah, these are, uh, you know, talking about the medical isotopes from these uh, liquid fluoride thorium reactors. Uh, thorium, this is one of the companies, this is from 2015, uh, the radiopharmaceuticals. Uh, and, you know, I don't need to go into that much more, but this idea of uh, precision medicine is going to be very closely linked to the radiopharmaceuticals. And I'll just play this quick clip. This This describes... Uh, why there were these two paths in nuclear uh, during the Manhattan Project and why they opted to choose the other one so that they could get the plutonium for the weapon systems. And again, I think uh, the entire narrative around uh, atoms for peace and disarmament was a setup to move into this new phase of precision medicine in decentralized power grids. So they ran the first one for a while to get to get what they wanted out of it. And then, um, you know, and then now they're ready to shift up to the other model. Let me give you a quick history of nuclear. Turns out back in the day, in the 60s, we had two different options for nuclear power. We had Admiral Rickover, who was pioneering light water reactors that required a lot of pressure, a lot of water uh, that he used on his submarines. He was petitioning that we put these on land. Turns out those reactors were very, very, very good at making plutonium, which meant it was very good at making weapons, and that was very appealing to the U.S. government. There was another individual that we don't often hear about, however. His name was Alvin Weinberg. He was a scientist at the Oak Ridge National Lab, and he had a different idea. Instead of getting this uranium and cramming it into pellets and then wrapping it in containers and then another layer of protection and then another layer of protection, he proposed that we take thorium, which is a similarly usable fuel for nuclear, and we dissolve it into a salt. And what that meant is instead of needing all kinds of these mechanical layers to hold that in, the salt chemically binds not just the thorium, but also the dangerous radioactive byproducts and prevents them from leaving. It traps it all in chemically. And chemistry, unlike our mechanical barriers, is not likely to fail. And he proposed this, and it basically got to a point in the 60s where the U.S. said, we can only fund one of these two paths. We cannot afford to do both. Rickover was persuasive, and he promised the bomb, and therefore we chose light water reactors and moved forward with this. 
The problem is salt reactors have some amazing, amazing benefits. When you look at nuclear waste, there's really just three parts. One is the leftover fuel. One is all the leftover split pieces of uranium. They call them the fission products. And then one is the plutonium and the americium and the curium. And that's the stuff that lasts 300,000 years that we don't know what to do with. Well, it turns out with these salt reactors, because we dissolve the fuel and the salt, we can pull each of those pieces out one at a time, separate them into something valuable and sell them. Yeah. And so I just sort of wonder about these, again, it's almost like a, they're looking to fabricate a lot of these radioisotopes and what are the what are all of the uses for them and what do we understand the uses might be within the transhumanist uh, construct. Uh, and then let's see. So yeah, so this is this this perfect day where I've talked about the the chemotherapeutics, the IRA 11 book. To suppress undesirable behavior, everyone submits monthly to chemotherapy treatments, otherwise they will get sick and demonstrate aberrant behavior. <laughs> That was a that was a mind blowing one for me too. When I was when I was anti nuclear, I think at different points we all kind yeah. of were because we all watched The Simpsons and and like you know <laughs> went yeah. to modern education systems, so we were all trained to be anti nuclear to varying yeah. degrees, or most of us were. And I think for me that was the biggest mind blower was to be presented with the facts that indeed everything that we've been burying, like ninety nine percent of that, can be reprocessed. It's still radioactive. That means it's still creating heat it's still usable it just requires technologies that we were in some ways closer to in america back in the 1970s when yeah. jimmy carter canceled the projects to close the nuclear fuel cycle and instead chose to bury it to save money um whereas russia india they're building fast breeder reactors that reprocess their nuclear wasted fuel and and can just use it again and use it again and anything you can't use as nuclear energy can become medical isotopes or other forms of scientific research isotopes that can be used for a variety of other things. So, Isn't it amazing? It's it's actual science. Um, and uh, so this is this was just my read aloud of Cosmic Humanism of Oliver Reiser, and I'm not going to go through all of this because it's about an hour. Uh, but this is where he was talking. I think this was might have actually been published posthumously, but a lot of his research from uh, the late 1930s through the 1960s about uh, this guided evolution through the use of radiation. So I just want to point that out. And uh, let's see, let's see, I'll do Thorium Network. Uh, Steffers shared this one with me. Uh, they're, they're based in uh, Zug, so the blockchain, you know, capital of all the stuff. And uh, they're Jeremiah Emanuel Josie is the head of the Thorium Network and supposedly the first nuclear powered blockchain but I don't think really essentially it's a supply chain, blockchain supply chain tracking for Thorium. So they're positioning themselves to uh, to profit from the business in this next gen nuclear. So again, I would say that this is not an underdog technology, that this is a planned uh, rollout that is very intentional. Uh, here they're talking about the, the Thorium economy and Thorium tokens uh, to exchange material around uh, blockchain logistics for supplying the Thorium for all of these next-gen reactors. So, um, you know, it, they probably don't need, you know, they don't need a guy from Kingston like promoting this. They, they've got a lot of people lined up to, to promote this thing. Um, I would say too, so this is energy economics. And I, I talked about this before with uh, Vernadsky and Hutchinson. And uh, here we've got, let me see, I guess Friedrich Saadi, oh, ecosystem evaluation. 
Hutchinson. Oh, Hutchinson must be a little bit higher up. Um, but yeah, working on this idea of ecosystem valuation based on energy and thermal economics. Uh, and Frederick Soddy was another, he was a radio uh, chemist. Uh, he was British and he was looking at this idea of energy credits. And it's interesting because he was coming at it from sort of a left leaning standpoint. Um, and so essentially what, what Howard Odom developed was this idea of energy systems, a, a language called uh, emergy. Uh, and it was based on systems thinking and uh, Barton Lanfee uh, using this idea of energy transfer. And, and that's sort of foundational to the whole technocracy idea, you know, that, that dates back, I don't know, to the 30s, um, the peak oil narrative and uh, the management of the economy through uh, energy credits and energy systems. And so th this really goes all the way forward into this nation nature-backed currencies uh, in both carbon and uh, biodiversity credits and that's something that Leo has spent a lot of time time at and so I don't think that we we can we have to if we're looking at the place of energy in this narrative it can't just be I want cheap energy um, which is again a legitimate concern for working class people who have astronomical housing and energy costs yes um, but at the same time, we have to realize that, you know, energy futures, energy costs are a game that are played by, um, you know, these futures traders, right? The, the, and the same people who are behind, M, uh, you know, the impact finance, like the, the Enron, you know, John Arnold. So I don't know how you secure good energy prices. It all seems like a bit of a fiction, whatever they'll charge, whatever they think they can get to advance their program. But the idea that we will somehow participate in an energy economy through our good behaviors, and as, as Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has said, uh, you know, this idea that we will all become energy entrepreneurs of ourselves and our homes, that's part of this decentralized energy grid that the nuclear stuff is baked into. And the idea of metabolic exchange, economic exchange, energy exchange, the biophysics, the social physics, the econophysics, all of it being integrated, that that has to be understood. Um, so I just want to emphasize this idea of energy-based economic systems, which goes back to technocracy, but also the, you know, uh, Hutchinson and Odoms and uh, Saudi and the the energy systems and let's see so i'm just gonna this is the last bit of this um so i want to point out this is jeremy pitt and he's written sort of this like anarcho-socialism book uh he's at london school of economics i think and here this is a talk he gave with katina michael at arizona state university and he's talking about these socio-physical cyber technical systems and smart villages these community energy systems and this idea of, again, uh, having the built environment be integrated with human behaviors and AI behaviors and being managed by circuits. Um, and he's, he's laying out that there can be a number of ways that that is done. Uh, either we delegate it to the machine and humans are out of the loop with the energy. We program it so humans are part of the loop. Uh, we have an interactive system where humans are in the loop or uh, attentive, meaning uh, humans, I guess, are running the system. And so it links from your smart house with your solar and wind and your house and your Wi-Fi and your electric car to a smart village to a national grid. And I imagine that probably some there are folks that want this modular nuclear fit into the smart village system. And, you know, I think we, we all appreciate this idea of 
uh, predictive programming a little bit. Uh, last year, I saw the, the the movie Don't Worry, Darling, uh, and it's it's sort of set in this mid-century modern Palm Springs, California, kind of uh, gated, like literally isolated community in the desert where the women all stay home and the men go out to work and they disappear for the day and come back. And there's all these strange explosions and sort of what happens in this, this the, one of the wives starts sort of waking up to realize that things are not right and ultimately realizes that she's living in a simulation and her body is like stuck in a bed in uh, San Francisco or something. And while her avatar is living out this weird life in this community, but you you can see, and it, it's got sort of this spiral, the integral spiral baked in, and it would be the perfect kind of community that you know they're talking about for these nuclear modular reactors. The town is called Victory, and um, it's again a, a very you know a dystopian suburb, right? That, 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 that is coming, coming next and, you know, would be coming under the name of, of, you know, a green transition, a just transition. And it's not really that dissimilar from these strange villages outside Copenhagen called, uh, Brondby Havby, a collection of houses in a grid of perfectly circular greenery as if beings from another planet made these towns. And so if you, you know, for people who are just listening, I'm just going to say like, they're like hubs, really like wheels, like cybernetic hubs. And they have maybe, um, I don't know, 15 houses in each circle. And, uh, and then there's only like one, there's a cul-de-sac and one way in and out. And you can imagine that being like a 15 minute city powered by these nuclear modules. Um, and then I have an image here. This is a, a proposal for a new uh, nuclear installation in uh, Wisconsin, like a dairy cooperative uh, that they're they're working on. Dairyland Power of La Crosse is looking at these new modular reactors. So, um, you know, I'm just I just want us to like think a little bit about um, what's coming. It's it's talking in this article about this new scale uh, power program that that it could be used uh, for rural communities, individual businesses, military operations refugee camps and field hospitals in remote places. Uh, we're testing microgrids in Alaska. And so, you know, I've written a bunch about this, the refugee camps and that there are prototypes for these things. And it's interesting because even in this, I have, there's like the, the UNSDGs in a circle, which looks kind of like, again, these, these circular, circular economy, circular smart villages. And I mean, we, we, we have to not kid ourselves that the, uh, the, the, the next gen nuclear is, is part of, part of that equation. All right. I just, I realized I, I left a few things out of this section six about the uh, uh, rise of next-gen nuclear. And I wanted to make sure I did that before I moved on to fertilizer. Uh, so I forgot to mention about the decentralized energy grid. I know I talked about that uh, broadly, but uh, this is uh, a colleague of Fox Green, this Sigma Marxillionaire at uh, the Space Commune. And this is a tweet from April 28th of 2023. Uh, and he says, China and Russia are pursuing smart grids too, but they are willing to burn coal and build nuclear plants, increasing the amount of electricity consumed by everyday people. Smart grids, when combined with degrowth and unchecked environmentalism, are very bad. And uh, and then it's it's talking about uh, you know 
smart grids. And so I just want to emphasize again, my, my question about next gen nuclear is even if we have cheap power, uh, do we want to live in smart villages? And, and that's a, that's a significant question. Like the smart grids, the decentralized power are part of that. So we need to be asking, you know, when we talk about looking at Jeremy Pitt and uh, socio-technical systems is, do we want to live in, in the smart grids and understanding where AI is taking us? So uh, wanting to point that out. And um, again, just to point out that Sig Sigma Mark Zillionaire <clears throat> Human Development Enjoyer at Space Commune. So again, colleagues with uh, Fox Green, I think they are co-workers at that creative agency. And uh, let's see, I want to, okay, so this is the energy entrepreneur conversation. And I'm gonna go ahead and play this again because I think it's worthwhile, worth listening to. So this, this is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in 2012, uh, pitching to sort of a, a liberal group in Houston, Texas. But of course, Houston, Texas is sort of the, the energy uh, center. And, you know, it's it, this is where he talks about uh, entre energy entrepreneurship. And that's what the smart grids are about. So, um, all right, so we'll play that. I, 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 a marketplace that turns every American into an energy entrepreneur, every home into a power plant and powers this country based upon American entrepreneurship and initiative and uh, human energy and what Franklin Roosevelt called. Human energy, okay? Uh, energy entrepreneurship and human energy. And again, he's bringing in Franklin Roosevelt, who is someone that uh, 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 Matthew Eret uh, references often. Called America's industrial genius, rather than Saudi Arabian oil. And, you know, we can do that. We have the capacity to do that. I, I'll just tell you, we have an irrational marketplace right now. I, in, in 49 states, the way that utilities make money is by burning as much energy as possible. So my group, Natural Resources Defense Council, rewrote the rules in California in 1982 so that the way that utilities make money in California is by conserving energy and reducing the use of carbon-based fuels. Okay, so I mean, in some ways, it sounds like he's a perfect setup for nuclear if they can convince him that it's safe and economical, um, and and they're going to sort of set the market so that it's uh, for our public well-being, right? And that that will be coded into the smart grids so that the AI will quote unquote like take care of us according to however it's coded. So, and this was not a radical idea. The way before we had deregulation in this country, the way the utilities made money is they would. Uh, they, they, you know, it's a regulated industry because it's a monopoly. So they have to go to the Public Utility Commission and say, I want to build a dam, a capital project. It's going to cost $100 million. We want to make 15% profits per year. And we want your permission to, to build the dam and then to integrate our profits into the rate base so that all the ratepayers pay us back for the dam over time and give us a profit annually. They had to show need and the PUC would stamp it approved and they'd go ahead and build it. And they made guaranteed profit. So today in California, the utilities, the utility CEOs will go to the Public Utility Commission and say, we want to tear the Edison light bulbs out of a million homes and replace them at our cost with LED light bulbs that provide better light and that, are, uh, and that use 12% of the energy. 
we want to go into a million homes and tear out antiquated hot water boilers and air conditioners and replace them with more efficient models that use eight or 10% of the energy. It's going to cost us $100 million. We want to make 15% profits and they stamp it approved and they go ahead and do it. And as a result of that law, utilities in California make money by doing good things. Now, again, I've talked about this before, but the LED lights, I think, are also connected to the optogenetics and this idea of smart appliances, right? Like he's talking about uh, water heaters and air conditioning units, but ultimately that will be applied to all of the smart appliances there. So that is the socio-technical system. And then I want to run this clip. This is from Jeremy Pitts, again, talking about a digital transformation. And he was promoting the idea of these smart villages on a decentralized distributed power grid um, and you know, to solve the wicked problems and that, that they will be integrated. We will be integrated into these built environment systems that know us. So I'm just going to run this clip next. It's two minutes. The rate of change is actually outstripping the rate at which the sociologists can understand these changes. So the idea, of course, is that you you, know, you actually form a community. You, you, you team up with other smart houses to form a smart village. And uh, and if, if RFK Jr. is right, right, it will be a uh, an entrepreneurial smart village where we're all competing on a leaderboard to be the best citizens of the smart village and use the least power. You either buy or sell energy, or you lend or borrow energy amongst yourselves. But even then, with a, a smart village of this kind, you might see daily or even uh, yearly fluctuations. So what do you do? Well, you get together with other villages and you form a smart town. And um, uh, at some point, you actually connect yourselves to, to, to the, to the your national grid. To, to make up uh, uh, any shortfall or to sell any excess. Or you could actually interact with them and you know, get them to decide what needs to be turned off in such a way. And so now... To decide what needs to be turned off, right? And so that is the gamification. That is sort of the distributed cognition and the participation and the decision theories among the residents of the smart village. We actually have humans in the loop because we really have a partnership between our computational and human intelligence. So a partnership between computational and human intelligence, that's really important. That's where we're going. Um, so if we wanna talk about the great reset and the, the death cult of Gaia worship, that's not gonna get us to the boring stuff of Jeremy Pitts talking about who's gonna turn on and off your smart appliances at what time. And, and of course, you know that's something that's already happening in a lot of parts of the world with rolling blackouts. Uh, this stuff is already in place. Um, so. I think these are the things that we should be centering on, not sort of inflammatory emotional appeals, but really the nuts and bolts of what is a socio-technical cyber-physical system. And where they're talking about humans being in the loop or not in the loop, how does that even happen? And, and what are our, our responsibilities to inform ourselves as uh, engaged citizens to have a, a a knowledgeable conversation and what this is as it rolls out? I mean, a lot of us are, are aware of the smart meters already, um, but this is the next level. This is the, how the smart meters integrate into AI and, um, you know, where our, 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 our smart home becomes the smart panopticon. So how are we going to, how are we going to solve it? Well, here it is. Here's, here's the, the, the solution. It, it's uh, self-organizing multi-agent systems. We 
And again, that's where we need to get to is this idea of the multi-agent system, the self-organizing multi-agent system. If we stop with eugenics um, and we, we don't take it to the next level, which is using game theory and decision theory to uh, create distributed cognition and emergent intelligence among uh, social systems and social natural systems, uh, we're, we're going to be behind the curve. Can look upon these situations uh, as involving a set of uh, autonomous and heterogeneous uh, peers, uh, whether they're human or computational intelligence. So computational intelligence being your peer. Uh, and they have to interact in such a way as to solve a collective action problem. So the collective action problem, and that is the social uh, choice theory. You know, these kinds of social dilemmas have been hugely just studied in philosophy and economics uh, under the umbrella of game theory, the, the science of strategic interaction, if you like. It's given that you model the people involved in these situations as players, there are a set of actions that are available to them. So you have the players, so we're agents, that's the digital twinning, and then you set, have a set of actions that are available, and then that is part of what's going to be governed by the distributed uh, autonomous organization, by the blockchain, is your, your set of choices is going to be predetermined by the machine. And a set of outcomes that will happen depending on uh, what choices each player makes. Right, so essentially life becomes a game. And, and, and that is, that, that's where things are headed um, in this idea of smart grids and uh, intelligent systems. But again, if you go back and, and look at um, uh, Fox Green's partner, this Sigma Marks millionaire, uh, you know, he's like, oh, well, totally the China-Russia smart grid is a good kind because we use coal and nuclear. And I'm like, I think the Sigma Marks millionaire isn't even understanding what the cyber-physical socio-technical system is. Um, is completely misunderstanding uh, the nature of the problem. So, uh, and again, uh, the the decentralized grid is going to run on blockchain, and, and it's quite interesting, this image from uh, the article in April of 2022, Decentralizing the Grid Operators Test Blockchain Solutions, has a key, which is kind of like that crazy sigil thing, uh, and it has two ants in sort of augmented reality or mirrored sunglasses standing next to the keyhole with the code. Um, and I guess you could buy that as an NFT or something like that. But we again, we've got the ants in the ant computer right there in the picture. They're telling you exactly what they're doing. Uh, and here is a, a Forbes article from March of 2022. Blockchain will be the glue connecting the future electric grid. And so again, blockchain is central uh, to distributed systems. And this is in the article, it says, uh, Blockchain will give utilities less control than legacy systems, uh, but it will make the system works better, work better. He compares the transition to the advent of the anti-lock braking for automobiles, which gave drivers less control of their brakes, much to their benefit. You won't really be in control of the situation anymore, and you will love the results. Um, blockchain, of course, figures into that because we need the most efficient mechanism to maintain trust uh, between parties where we're never going to trust each other perfectly, we can figure out a way to make that transaction happen. 
so the power grid is running on blockchain. And there are a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm, I don't really want to even bother talking about blockchain or understanding it. It's not important. Well, if you want to talk about energy grids, it's super important. And uh, the last thing on this is this idea of crypto. I just want to sort of emphasize this. Uh, Stuffer sent me a few texts um, in the meantime. And so the, these are the idea of linking these nuclear, uh, small scale nuclear reactors to Bitcoin mining. Uh, and this this is a gentleman, he goes by Kevian Devani, uh, not a huge number of subscribers on his YouTube, like a couple thousand, uh, but he, uh, you know, he, he does these uh, various interviews uh, on, on Bitcoin and this one is called Nuclear High Bitcoinization with Small Modular Reactors with Ryan McLeod, KDC. Uh, I guess uh, episode 216, but again, linking uh, nuclear Bitcoin mining with small nuclear reactors. Uh, so that is part of that. And then we've got, uh, here's an interview that he did with in, um, oh, I don't actually have the date. This is uh, episode 201, so or before that, uh, with uh, 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 Matthew Eret, and it is the economic science of creative optimism. Now, I'm all for creative optimism, that sounds, that sounds pretty good, um, but and you know and, and I, if you're not sure, like yeah, it definitely is uh, Matthew. And I think it was in this interview that Matthew was talking about being skeptical of the Austrian School of Economics, which I'm totally all all for that. Um, but there is this link between Bitcoin mining, which this guy is all about. And and I have to say, uh, Matthew in his interview didn't really take the bait about Bitcoin, so I appreciate that about him. Um, this is another, this is the guy I think who was on the first interview of pitching small nuclear reactors for Bitcoin. Uh, it's uh, another episode on uh, how Bitcoin accelerates the development of small modular nuclear reactors. So there's, there's definitely a contingent out there that is pushing this technology for this purpose. Uh, Suffer sent me a couple tweets. This person, Satoshi Baggins, uh, Bitcoin miners benefit from reliable carbon-free energy and nuclear plants guarantee that those numbers of me megawatts, right? So the Bitcoiners are pushing clean nuclear as their plan. Uh, there's an entity called TerraWolf, T-E-R-A-W-U-L-F, and they're working on relationships with uh, nuclear industries for Bitcoin mining. And uh, this was in April of 2023. Uh, I think last year, again, this is from their, their homepage, Terra Wolf. They're talking about uh, focused on ESG impact. So it's not like Bitcoin is not aligned with that. Um, and they're, they're looking at, you know, maintaining their ESG profile with their Bitcoin mining. And this is something that's a bit local to me. Uh, from uh, February of 2023, that there is this uh, Tallinn Energy, which runs a nuclear power plant in Berwick, Columbia County, Pennsylvania, that is teaming up with uh, uh, the, let's see, uh, TerraWolf, yeah, the Bitcoin mining operation. And they're, they're, they're going to uh, set aside 12% of the electricity uh, generated by the plant to run a Bitcoin mining operation, 200,000 square feet and a 400,000 square foot data processing center. So I would just say like, if we're framing uh, RFK Jr. as anti-imperialist and like anti-empire, the Bitcoin mining is the next empire. Like that's that's what it boils down to. So, um, right, well, I just had to take a little bit of a break. <laughs> um, okay, so we're moving on. We're getting in the home stretch. Uh, this is section seven. And so this, uh, uh, this section, I wanted to sort of touch on 
my previous research into um, the idea of atoms for peace and biophysics and the environmental movement coming out of the Atomic Energy Commission, which was work that was, uh, you know, initially started by uh, Leo Saracino, and he had done a presentation with Sebs on that, and then we had done uh, a number of, uh, we, we worked together with Jason, Jason and Leo and I. Initially, it started out as a parametric insurance uh, project that Leo had worked out, and then I sort of expanded it into the atomic ecology uh, movement, and so we had this four-part series uh, that you know, it's always it always is so sad when people don't keep going in the series, right? You get you get a good start and then it tapers off further and further uh, as we go along. Uh, but it's really important information to understand uh, the Atomic Energy Commission and the environmental movement and the use of radioisotopes in tracking metabolism. And so, like, I know that there are people out there who are like, I don't think that there were any atomic bombs and it didn't exist or whatever. And like. I don't know. There's a whole lot of history. I don't know what you think they're doing at Oak Ridge National Labs if it doesn't involve radiation um, or what the Department of Energy is after or what all these cyclotrons were doing. Um, it's not just bombs. It's it's a lot of other stuff uh, in terms of uh, the molecular biology and biophysics. So I spent a lot of time, I guess it was last summer, uh, like late summer, early fall. These, these aired in September of 2022 uh, talking about uh, you know, and, and we have a whole playlist there about it. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought it was interesting, again, this connection between Vernadsky and uh, Hutchinson. This is, a, I'm just trying to think of what this is. This is from an article, uh, Hutchinson's Tree, the Journal of Limnology, um, and sort of, talking a little bit about it touches on Hutchinson and the quote from here is the year I spent at Yale which Hutchinson went by as if in a foggy, foggy reverie it was my first year in America and I was quite disoriented I did not realize the extent of Hutchinson's stature as a scientist my background was in geology petrology more than in biology or ecology actually ecology was just starting as a discipline and Hutchinson was one of its first pioneers he had arranged for Vladimir Vernadsky's The Biosphere to be translated into English so that the ideas of the great Russian geoscientist could be known in the West. Vernadsky was a member of the pre-Russian revolutionary intelligentsia that included um, Mendeleev, uh, Mendeleev and others. <laughs> Sorry about that. Their holistic approach led them to develop the basis of modern ecology. And of course, I guess as we later learn that Hutchinson was somewhat selective in what was translative of Vernadsky's, uh, so it was tended to be more towards the Malthusian angle than the uh, uh, opposing entropy. Uh, but again, this idea of the biosphere. Uh, so I, I, again, I, I just continue to be a little bit frustrated with this framing of like sacrificed on the altar of Gaia is that we are humans in, in a biosphere. and. Uh, th this is linking the Odoms to Hutchinson. So it, it said that, uh, uh, let's see. EP, uh, let's see. I'm just going to read the Odom brothers. Uh, it is not an understatement to say that Eugene P. Odom, along with his brother Howard or Tom Odom, have been two of the most important ecologists of the 20th century. E.P. Odom was born in 1913, and his father was a professor of sociology at UNC Chapel Hill, Howard Washington Odom. As Hagen points out, Eugene's father had embraced the concept of holism, uh, which he passed on to his son, 
which <laughs> sorry um he, uh, which he passed on to his uh, son and which influenced E.P. Odom's uh, approach to ecology hereafter. Uh, Odom decided to pursue a PhD at the University of Illinois, where as, as strange as it may seem, he worked on the physiology of heart rates in birds with Charles Kendi, a physiological ecologist. Now, I think that's really interesting is the, the heartbeat, because I think that there is the electric the electricity aspect of that and the Taurus field and also the electromagnetism of the birds and the migration patterns. So I think it's actually very important uh, clue there that he worked on the hearts of birds because there is something probably in the resonant of the heart of the bird to the earth um, and that bio uh, geochemistry, right? Like that we're living in conjunction with the magnetism of the earth. So I don't think that that's just an aside. I think that's really important. Um, uh, the, the chair of the department was Victor Shelford, who at the time was completing his book Bioecology and who later would write the classic Ecology of North America. Thus, Eugene was exposed to ecology from the start, and the large group of graduate students in the department provided the opportunity to discuss the most exciting ideas of the time. Odom later remarked that his transition from the physiology of the individual to ecosystems was a natural one, since he, as he put it, it is not such a big step to go from physiology on one level to physiology on the ecosystem level. With help from his younger brother, Tom, who is Howard, uh, who is finishing up a PhD with Hutchinson, E.P. Odom actually made this transition after accepting a position with the Atomic Energy Commission. In fact, while Tom was at Yale, he used to send his brother Hutchinson's lecture notes, uh, which over the years eventually led to a correspondence building up between E.P. Odom and Hutchinson. Hutchinson's influence in Odom's later textbook becomes evident once this connection is known. And so again, Vernadsky, Hutchinson, Odom Brothers, Ecology, very very close trajectory and the Atomic Energy Commission right in the middle of all of that. And so again, the, the narrative of Davos, London Bankers depopulation agenda uh, through eugenics and the Fabian socialists is leaving out all of this part. And this is a really important part. If we want to talk about uh, next gen nuclear and radiation and energy economics, you can't leave out Hutchinson and Odom and the ties back to Vernadsky. You just can't. So I think this is really important. Um, and again, this is this is just part of the, the map that I did with Howard Odom, ecological systems theory. Again, the game theory, systems theory, decision theory, uh, working in weather uh, monitoring during World War II and essentially irradiated a jungle, a sacred jungle uh, in Puerto Rico. Uh, and then... Uh, G. Evelyn Hutchinson was uh, his, he studied under, so Howard studied under Evelyn, and then Eugene is the, the brother, uh, and he was working at the Savannah River Lab at the Atomic Energy Commission, even though he was based in University of Georgia. And then uh, Vladimir Vernadsky, uh, Hutchinson translated selectively Vernadsky's work. And then Howard Odom also was part of the study of the, the bombing of the Anitawak Atoll with the hydrogen bomb under Operation Ivy and studying the coral and the, the marine life. And as we understand more about embryogenesis and morphogenesis and mutations um, and the creation of life and biogeochemistry, like I think what that was, they, they say that it was to like a show of strength against the Soviet Union, but I think it was really much more about an experimentation on a very rich, diverse ecosystem that was decimated by that bomb with radiation uh, to just figure out what comes next. 
Um, and again, uh, coral, coral reefs are very uh, important, uh, both in terms of biodiversity and fractals. And uh, so, you know, I'll just, I just want to sort of touch again that the, the, the bombs are, are closely connected to uh, the Human Genome Project. And again, if you, if you haven't look, had occasion to look into it, it might surprise you that Los Alamos, you know, played this major role in the Human Genome Project, but they did. So they, they were, you know, behind the, the bombs and behind the genomes. And so the, the summit in 1984 that happened at the Alta Ski Resort outside of Salt Lake City, and again, uh, Salt Lake City and the Mormons, the Mormon transhumanists, are really central to so much of this in terms of biotech and uh, nuclear and, um, you know, connections to Disney and connections to money and insurance and uh, psychology and all sorts of things. Uh, the LDS church is really uh, in the, the thick of so much of it. But at this Alta summit in 1984, uh, it was it was set up ostensibly to uh, look into the Radiation Effects Research Foundation effort uh, that, that came out of the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission. So examining the, the mutation effects, the genetic impacts of the bombs on the population of Japan, not to mitigate their suffering, but really to figure out what happened in terms of interesting mutations. And so at that point, it was decided that they might as well just try to sequence the whole genome. And the important thing also about uh, Alta is that it was the site in, in the, I think, 68, uh, 67 or 68 of the meeting that essentially uh, catalyzed the ARPANET, uh, the, the, the beginning force of the internet. So uh, the connection, and again, Japan, this is this little part up here, but it became a center uh, after World War II when it was sort of remade uh, to, to focus on the development of humanoid robotics. And so, you know, and, and again, Peter Stone is, is sort of a partner in that at UT Austin and, and this idea of RoboCop and teamed robotic systems. Uh, so yeah, the humanoid robotics and all of that is very closely linked to Japan and there's uh, Quaker connections in that too. And let me see. Uh, okay, so that's Alta and then the other thing I want to mention, so uh, this is something that Mark Andreessen talks about, is Nixon. Uh, so Mark Andreessen in the Rogan interview talked about the fact that Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency in 1970. And then he also proposed a project in 1973 that was unrealized called Project Independence with 1,000 nuclear reactors. And so it's quite an interesting comparison of on the one hand, you've got the EPA. On the other hand, you have the nuclear reactors. Uh, and, and of course, that didn't happen because of Watergate. Uh, but, he, you know, this part of the map I have down here is about uh, Coke Industries and disruptive tech and shine and, uh, you know, this medical technology. But over here, then we also have, so Nixon was a Quaker. He was raised Quaker in Southern California. And another Quaker who was a president and very much involved in nuclear material, radioactive material, was Herbert Hoover, uh, who uh, was connected later on with the Hoover Institute uh, at Stanford. And, uh, you know, he was he was connected to Edward Dewey and the Foundation for the Study of Cycles. So we have both Hoover and Nixon, who are both Quaker presidents and both interested in uh radioactive material for for various purposes which i think is is an interesting thing to bring up and then the other family i wanted to mention are the udalls uh, because when we were looking into thorium uh 
I noticed that there was this survey from the 1960s on the geological uh, distribution of resources of thorium. And I'm trying to think at the top, like India and Brazil are some of the top producing, but the US is maybe in the top five. I think Russia is a bit further down the, the line. Uh, Turkey maybe has a lot of thorium, but India and Brazil, which is interesting because those are both areas where a lot of social impact finance. Uh, but this report was done while Stuart Udall was the secretary for the Department of the Interior. And the Udall family is a longstanding uh, LD family connected with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the West. And uh, the, the patriarch is David King Udall, who uh, was, uh, he, he was a British uh, immigrant uh, who came to the U.S. He was a convert, uh, converted to uh, Mormonism and then uh, went to Nephi, Utah, and then he uh, was sent to St. John's Apache County. Uh, to set up uh, a settlement there. And then later on, uh, through this line, uh, was uh, uh, Stuart Udall came, came out of this. And they're a very politically connected family. Uh, and then Tom Udall is, uh, who, who was a diplomat uh, serving as ambassador to New Zealand and a, a Democratic uh, U.S. Senator from New Mexico for quite a number of years, uh, he... He is also sort of involved in the climate stuff. And uh, this is a uh, part of my map from my atomic ecologies that was looking at Thomas Lovejoy. Uh, Thomas Lovejoy was involved in environmental policy at George Mason, which again is where Lazansky, the guy who's connected to the Rising Tide Foundation, uh, taught briefly. I mean, maybe, I don't know if it was before or after Rochester, uh, but he, Thomas Lovejoy was working on a debt swap, uh, a debt for nature swap, where for sort of this post-structural adjustment, uh, they would do conservation work, right? And that's, again, feeding into what I think Fox Green would talk about as green imperialism and s save forests to create these carbon credit markets. And uh, so Tom Udall, who is, again, um, former from New Mexico, ambassador to New Zealand, which we know is sort of deeply embedded in all of this as well, in April of 2020, so just, you know, not, not even a month after the lockdown started, uh, was part of a presser event with the Center for American Progress with Lovejoy talking about the links between COVID and the climate situation. So again, wedding these two things, and that's the cybernetic offput. Um, and Lovejoy was a fellow at the United Nations Foundation with uh, that was created in the 90s, late 90s by Ted Turner. Uh, so you've, you, you know, I just want to mention uh, both the LDS connection uh, with the, the Udalls, Stuart Udall, Department of the Interior, uh, Tom Udall, uh, climate justice, the environment. Uh, let's see, we've, I think this is just another Stuart Udall. Yeah, St. John's County. Um, and interestingly enough, he did his mission work, Stuart Udall did, in uh, New York and Pennsylvania and, and was in the Air Force as a gunner and then was elected to Congress in Arizona. So a very, and there's another Udall, I think that's in Colorado, which is again, being set up as the blockchain state. Um, so, you know, we, we, we've got these various connections to sort of the nuclear side of things. And the other thing I wanted to mention was again, the, the atoms for peace, I've talked about this before, but the International Atomic Energy Agency is based in Vienna. Uh, Vienna is also a hub for many things, and I'll, I'll walk you through a little bit of an infographic that I did, uh, but not the least of which is the, the 
uh, Austrian School of Economics, also now tokenomics and the nuclear. And so again, once you understand, as I do now, that the radioisotopes are the initial track and trace technology in a metabolic exchange tracking system of ecology, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Uh, there's their address in Vienna. Vienna is a very uh, storied place. And there we've got the WU Wien, uh, Vienna Universität, uh, which is this research institute for crypto economics, uh, setting up all of their uh, papers on uh, the crypto economic system and the token economy. And, you know, it would be great if someone like uh, Matthew Arrett would pick this up because clearly he has the, the academic chops, the research chops to look into it. Um, and he said that he he opposes this idea of the Mises, uh, Vienna, uh, Austrian, uh, school of economics that that this was a setup for more control and he's right we just need to take it to the next level which is uh the token economy and here's here's a book i actually have this book again another one i've started and i haven't finished uh sherman Vashkamir's token economy and she's a close collaborator with michael zargam of block science so uh when we understand the atoms for peace being linked all the way back to the 1950s with track and trace technology we start to understand things a little better. And I'll just I'll just walk you through this um, infographic that I made up uh, a while ago. And it probably makes no sense to other people. People are like, this doesn't really make sense to me. But I'll put it out and eventually maybe I'll refine it to something that makes more sense to other people. But these are all things that are centered on uh, Austria and, and mostly in Vienna. And what I'm, I'm sort of trying to get at with these different entities that are connected is this idea of agent-based simulations, which again, Eric does speak to game theory, so I'm sure he's familiar with that. Uh, the creation of artificial societies that have social values modeled in them through the tokens. This idea of a blockchain mind file, which is again, the dematerialization towards, um, you know, this next step of evolution. Uh, as imagined by Reiser, Desjardins, Vernadsky. Uh, but is this something we've agreed to? Because if the next phase of evolution is a blockchain mind file that's being developed by uh, defense, finance, military interests to put the entire world uh, into a, uh, a Belt and Road Web3 simulation, like, no, thank you, right? Like, it has to, I would think that this had to, would have to be something that we would give our agreement to, or else it would be against any sort of innate human agency. Uh, the idea of Frederick Soddy of a steady state economy based on energy, an idea of quantum thermodynamics, uh, Laszlo's idea of a one world homeostat, which is balance, which is the peace stuff that we, again, the, the framing that they're offering about RFK Jr. being an anti-imperialist. I think that's really important. Uh, the Moonshot Project and, and this idea of a global brain multiverse. And so I, I see a lot of resonance with some of the issues brought up, again, by Vernadsky and uh, Lamarckian evolution and intent and entropy. But is this what we've chosen? Like, did we actually choose this knowingly or is this something that's being imposed? And so Vienna is an interesting center because it's got the atoms for peace. And again, I would say next gen nuclear has to be understood as that, right? Most of the Cold War was set up as a war and the death cult, right? Uh, and to weaponize space and to to um, actually develop a lot of this material that I think will re be repurposed into these new systems. Uh, and then in addition to Atoms for Peace, we have uh, the Berton Lanfey Center for System Science. So since systems engineering, the Austrian School of Economics, which again, free market economics is central 
you know, this perception, the story about free market economics, not that it's so free because ultimately the BIS ultimate ledger is up there somewhere, but this perception that we have a free exchange of tokens, whether they be voting or money or behavioral pellets or something like that, um, that the consumer, the, as a sovereign consumer, and that's what concerns me when I see Eric, like in his Canadian Patriot stuff, talking about sovereignty, um, because I think that that's central to the free market premise is us being sovereign uh, in our choices. Um, because essentially they're using our decision theories to train the AI. Uh, there's the Research Institute for Crypto Economics that I, I showed before. Uh, the Austrian Society for Cybernetic Studies. Uh, this feeds into the Circular Economy Club. And we know the circular economy is part of that cybernetics and the recycling. Um, and in some ways, even the way they're pitching the, these new liquid salt reactors, right? They're like, oh, there's no waste. It's all recycled into other components that we can use. That's kind of a circular economy too. Uh, the Kino Circle, which is connected to this Foundation for the Study of Cycles, it's a foresight futurist group uh, with um, hedge fund market investors who are forecasters, um, and they're based in, and he's based in Vienna. This idea of layering in psychoanalysis, uh, and that's something that came up in the cosmic humanism discussion that I read yesterday uh, with Oliver Reiser, was he was talking about the interface of using both uh, radiation for mutations, but also uh, field guides for archetypal like mental fields. So it was like managing your genetics, but not just the genetics, managing the fe energetic fields, which I think is ties into Michael Levin's morphogenesis, but using archetypes within this mental construct. So again, uh, Jung was briefly involved in that and then stepped away, but Jung was someone that Oliver Reiser talked about quite a bit in that last chapter of Cosmic Humanism. Uh, Ernst Haeckel, uh, the evolutionary monism, uh, which again is more metaphysical and linked to embryology and more in line with sort of Lamarck. So I think uh, Vernadsky would be more in line with, with Haeckel on that. And then this idea, I, I, I've talked about this before, but Ian Grigg, who is the father of uh, legal smart contracts and uh, using machine learning, uh, he did this weird project that was connected to Vienna, um, actually Amstetten, uh, using, it was an, a weird art project using uh, pressed flowers as a currency. And that's not unlike actually, um, I, I don't think they're using pressed flowers, but Peter Buffett has set up a local currency in Kingston. So this idea of these local currency exchanges, this ecology of money uh, to inform social transactions and share them with the machine. And then contrasting the evolutionary monism and sort of the metaphysical, you have the Vienna circle, which is log logical positism, which is empir empirical materialism and uh, that re would reject the metaphysics. So you have both sides. And then the Austrian Council for Research and Technology, which is a lot of smart cities. And, and Raul uh, Diego had written a paper on that, a, a, a blog post on that for Silicon Icarus. So my larger question on all of this in the context of next-gen nuclear is, are we being cybernetically evolved through this combination of Austrian economics and gamified biophysics into a collective consciousness hive mind? And so the place of the radioisotopes that are connected to uh, the, the modular nuclear and connected that will potentially directly to us in terms of if we're, we're treated with these radioactive isotopes and then in the future through our digital identity being guided through nudges that are encoded in social systems, that this could be where it's going and that this is where next-gen nuclear fits in. And so maybe it, it's not really a, a way of getting out of the Great Reset, but it's actually us doubling down and wandering in it uh, much more deeply in sort of a tricky way. So I'm just going to pull a couple of clips here. 
um, from uh, Fox and Matthew. This one is uh, sort of emphasizes again this this situation as overpopulation and Gaia worship, um, and you know th this is from uh, Eretz Substack, and he's he's quoting Vernadsky here about uh, bio geochemical energy connected with reason will grow and expand um, with time and sort of that this awakening of the future. Uh, we live in a period of new geological evolutionary change in the biosphere, but our democratic ideals are in tune with the elemental geological processes, the laws of nature, and with the noosphere. Um, so we can be confident. So this idea of the noosphere and this evolution <coughs> and us being connected to the geology um, you know, this is all part of it. Now, I do have some questions, like maybe there is something about within the morphogenesis of electromagnetism and, you know, the pole shifts or as Riser talks about, like the radiation belts. I mean, maybe there is very much something that is linking us through resonance at all of these levels. Um, but I'm not quite ready to throw in the towel and sign up for the Ascension program or the Moonshot Avatar Society 5.0 program. Uh, I need to know more. And I do think that the nuclear program, uh, going back all the way back to Vernadsky, uh, is is integrated into the conversation. And so I don't know exactly how it's all going to work out, but um, I think Vernadsky is is a key a key player in in this, and I'm not saying necessarily saying it's evil. Like I'm sure maybe Vernadsky he was actually a dissident against the Czar and the government that came after. He was still hopeful about people, so I'm not saying that he was some sort of like you know evil genius back in the day. He just had an idea of how the evolution was going to happen, and I would say I'm not consenting to any non-consensual evolutionary trajectory that involves um, the atomic, or, you know, the Department of Energy and uh, Goldman Sachs and, you know, uh, MK Ultra. I'm just not, I'm not signing up for that. So that's so different from the type of cynical views of overpopulation that are supposed to scare us uh, in the West where we're told maybe if we're lucky, we'll have only a, a billion people or less by the end of the century is the sort of crap we're being told if we're lucky you know <laughs> i know it's sick such a it's different sick. philosophy yeah. I, they don't realize that that's it's the ideology of hitler right i mean this what is this depopulation no it's like no we should be fruitful and multiply and um no it, it is gaia worship i always go back to that because i try i always try to like understand how can people get to a point where they think that's okay, you know, what, like, and, and if you start to think that the earth is this sort of living creature and that we're growing too big on it and we're taking up too much space and all these resources and that all the other animals are, are pure and beautiful and that we're like, this just something gone haywire, something gone wrong. I don't know. Yeah, and everything it, is natural except us. So that's so different from the- All right. So, you know, I just want to emphasize that that again, my the lens that I use is right relationships, and that you know Robin Walkemer, we're the younger siblings, so we should be actually listening to the older beings on the planet and trying to learn some stuff. And I don't feel like that that's so antithetical to Vernadsky because maybe what he's imagining is that we have a resonance with the environment uh, and that it's reciprocated, that it's not a dominating uh, 
structure. And to me, what they're proposing here seems very much more like a selfish uh, program that the, the the environment is used to uh, create a very anthropocentric framework. And so I think that there's got to be something in between. Um, and again, this, this ethos that um, we don't have to think, or we, we don't have to be thoughtful about how we use resources, very much plays into sort of the Cato Institute free market framing. Like, I mean, I'm sure that the Coke industries would love all of that, right? Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think we're, we're wrong to imagine that these big industries that are developing this new emerging technology have the human interest, uh, the, the regular people, working class people, uh, their interests at heart. Like what we know is that at every level, the, the most elite built tech billionaires are invested in the sustainable development goals to turn people and nature into data commodities, to bet on them as a gambling uh, project on dashboards, and then to use the data that's accrued to feed the machine learning and, and actually enliven, so to speak, these synthetic beings like the, the Sophia the robot. So to me, that's the ultimate eugenics program is this idea of allowing um, these technological developments to harness our our most intimate, uh, creative, soulful aspects of our life, and then to d take them outside of nature and feed them into a machine. Um, so anyway, I just I think I just want to emphasize that there's two ways of looking at it, and one again is the depopulation, Gaia worship. We should be able to do whatever we want uh, on the planet, and. The one I'm offering is, wait a minute, we're 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 all sharing the planet, and there are issues that are serious that we need to think about. The solutions that are being proposed by uh, the corporate environmentalist sector, the the green imperialists, are not actually going to resolve any of the situation. They're actually going to double down and make it worse. So let's step out of both of those scenarios. Is there something else that we can do and actually work in? in connection with the, the the biosphere as part of it. And I, I feel like that that may be actually more in line with what Vernadsky was saying. So, okay, so that's one clip. And then, so this is talking about uh, Huxley and the environmental movement. And I will just put in that I have Huxley in this. This is one of my other maps uh, about, uh, uh, here we, we've got Huxley. It's talking about a lot of the things. Again, you know, I've developed this map a couple months ago, but we're covering a lot of the same territory, Matthew Eret and, and myself, uh, that he he was a, a biologist, a eugenicist, and a founder of UNESCO and connected to the Galton Society, uh, founded UNESCO, was tied in with the International Con Union for the Conservation of Nature. So again, man deciding, man above nature, man above other men. And <clears throat> that ultimately this creation of these assets, uh, th this trajectory that started back in the, the post-World War II era, uh, the conservation is feeding into these new system economic systems of natural capital, uh, ecosystem valuation, and nature-backed uh, currency and tokenized diversity. And, you know, that's something that Whitney Webb has written about, like these national natural asset corporations, but she didn't really take it to the point of talking about Web3 tokenization and uh, these markets, uh, these liquid markets that are being made in natural capital. I think her understanding was that it was just another way of on paper 
acting like you were doing conservation, but still raiding the vault. Um, and I'm not saying that there's no vault raiding going on, but there's a, a new game in town. And for that, we actually have to understand the tokenization. Uh, so I just wanted to sort of point out that I've got Huxley's and again, uh, you know, I'd mentioned before Morris or Maurice Strong, who is a Canadian in energy and oil mining and his connection to Barbara Ward Jackson. So uh, Canada's ties to now she was uh, British, but very involved in Canada's uh, on in Canada and uh, in the US. And I, I think she actually advised JFK and Johnson. Uh, so we you know, she's an important character. I just, I want to point that out. And I'm, I'm thankful to Raul for bringing her to my attention in his uh, Nigeria article. Um, yeah, so this is the, the article that Whitney Webb wrote about asset classes putting the new world up for sale. Uh, and again, I, I, I think that it's not very clear the nature of the quote unquote sale is linked to Web3 tokenization. And, you know, the challenge is in talking about the Web3 tokenization is that many of the people who um, would be best positioned to talk about it in the alternative media are embedded in the blockchain system, whether that be through Rockfin or some sort of blockchain media platform or, uh, you know, pitching crypto payments, uh, getting paid. And so they're, they're not really in a good position to deconstruct what uh, Web3 tokenization means for human capital or natural capital. Are you saying that the eugenics movement of the 19th and 20th century before, like that led up to Hitler was actually tied to the same transhumanism that's being spoken of today at Davos? <laughs> now, you know, I did a whole series about eugenics and I actually took it back to the Spanish mission system. Uh, and California and looking at the the uh, containment of the indigenous people and their their incorporation into industrial agricultural practice. So we, I would be interested in, in their take on that and then how that moves forward into the Human Betterment Project, the Human Betterment Foundation, uh, which was based in Pasadena and that the, the first founder of President of Stanford was a eugenicist, uh, Mr. Terman. Uh, so the, the, the connection of all of this like high technology into eugenics that goes, in my opinion, all the way back to the, the conquest of North America by Western interests. Um, so, you know, that's, it's not just Hitler. And again, a lot, the, 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 the Nazi party, uh, the, you know, Hitler was looking to the work at Cold Spring Harbor um, to develop these uh, ideas around uh, their, uh, you know, ethnic cleansing, right? Their, their eugenics programs, their forced sterilizations, their uh, attacks on people who were disabled, um, you know, and that all that happened before, like the, the it fully ramped up, you know, with the extermination of Jewish people. So all of this stuff with eugenics was baked in, but it, he came to look at the U.S. first, you know, and I'll just point out that Lozansky, you know, that one paper that I had was presented, it was on genetics and waveforms and it was at Cold Spring Harbor. So this history continues and I, I was there, I sat in the room and I saw all the books. So it's not, eugenics hasn't gone away, but this idea that sometimes it's it's a, a Nazi program versus like a homegrown American program, uh, we have to come to terms with that and not just on the east coast cold spring harbor but on the west coast with the human betterment foundation are you saying something yeah so i mean crazy? i don't i don't see i don't know much about transhumanism but yeah i've heard people i've heard people talk about that is that it sounds like like eugenics right it's it's i'm and i'm sure like i see it so much in the environmental movement that 
uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure all these, these Davos people, they come up with, I mean, that's the purpose of it, right? That's these Davos people. So if you, if you're framing it as that, these Davos people, you're not going to look at Cold Spring Harbor, right? You're not going <clears> to, <throat> You're not going to be looking at MIT. You're not going to be looking at Stanford or SI, SRI International or the UCLA Institute for Creative or USC Institute for Creative Technologies. Um, you're, you're going to say it's those people out there, not like somebody that might be riding the bus with you or you know on the highway with you or a parent in your kid's school. You're going to imagine it's some bad person out there as opposed to something that is part of this larger technological trajectory. That is the purpose of Davos and the Club of Rome is to continue these 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 plans that they had to mm -hmm. create, you know, an ideal human race. Now, I would just say, again, the eugenics part of this, like precision medicine, personalized medicine is going to be part of this overall eugenics, not the death cult version, but the optimization version. Uh, all of the, the biotechnology is part of the eugenics program on the optimization side. And I think we have to understand, you know, again, the stuff about personalized jabs or whatever that was promoted by Children's Health Defense, Liz Mumper, is part of that, right? And so we have to come to terms with that. Well, you know, something crazy uh, is that I was just reading a little while ago how I uh, Sir Julian Huxley himself, who co-founds the uh, the World Wildlife Fund for Nature, but before that he he founded directly um, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature the year after he founds UNESCO. So that's sort of like he's the godfather of the environmentalist movement. He's also the yeah. guy who coined the term transhumanism, but he did that mm -hmm. all while at the same time acting as president of the British Eugenic Society in 1961. <laughs> All of yeah. you with a lot of balls at the same time. But yeah, it's directly the same thing. Okay. And so I just want to, within that context, point out, uh, so the the work at that was coming out of Oak Ridge National Labs uh, in the post-World War II era with, uh, you know, using uh, these radioactive isotopes and dumping them on lake beds and studying mutations and Hutchinson and all of that stuff, that was actually the birth of the environmental movement, at least in North America. And so I think it's a bit, if you're if you're uplifting Huxley and framing it as eugenics and Fabianism, but you're not also talking about the Atomic Energy Commission's role in uh, the ecological system and Hutchinson and the Odoms, it's lacking, right? And especially if what you're promoting is uh, nuclear energy, which is overseen by the Department of Energy. The Atomic Energy Commission became the Department of Energy. So it's actually important and very much related. Um, so let's see. So I'm going to I'm going to run this one one clip here. Um, like I was a little I've been a little frustrated with Matthew because, again, he's on a certain part of the elephant like he's got. I mean, he actually has covered a pretty good amount of ground on the elephant. But again, the frame hasn't gotten to the point of understanding uh, decision theory, uh, complexity and emergence and social computation. And that the nudges aren't just to be an asshole and push people around or to make money off of them, but actually there is a, a larger purpose, which is this collective um, social insect program, which I think is again, linked to this human computation, social computation systems. Um, so in, in this is a clip from this recent conversation with the conscious resistance with uh, Last American Vagabond, uh, Bros and Webb and Christensen, uh, where he's taught, he's getting there. He's very close. He's talking about uh, using behavioral psychology 
uh, and this is in the context of weaponized social media, uh, early on in the, in the 1960s in Africa to foment uh, conflict among certain groups and that they were experimented on in this behaviorist way. Uh, and he almost gets to the point of social insects, but not quite. And I would say like, keep going, Matthew, keep going, because you can get there. So uh, we'll listen to this uh, short clip. And sorry, it's so blurry. I just, he was a tiny thing on the screen when I took the screenshot, so just listen. We're already doing work uh, that, that, that's tied to Paul Lazarfeld, Kurt Lewin of Tavistock on the nature of social networks. They were looking at tribes that had certain, mm -hmm. as if, you know, these human tribes in Africa were somehow these like bug or animal species. And the bug species, so social insects, E.O. Wilson, that's where we need to go next, Matt. And, you know, there, there were folks who were with the Robert Livingstone Institute, which was part of the, the British intelligence apparatus managing Kenya, big chunks of Africa. And they were just trying to think like, well, how can we nudge certain groups and tribes to fight each other? Like the Mau, you know, the, the Mau Mau uprising in 1955. You, have, you had people really doing this work and mapping it out as if human beings were again, just like these, these things you just manipulate for geopolitical benefit without soul, without conscience, nothing nothing of the sort. And they created the these data sets that were drawn upon. So again, that's Webb. And she's saying, oh, that's the Kissinger deal. Um, and I would say, no, it's the E.O. Wilson deal, because this idea of treating people as objects to be manipulated certain, for certain ends, he's saying geopolitical. But what I'm saying is in the future, it's going to be computational. It's going to be biohybrid computation. Um, so again, getting very close, but not quite there. By the founders, of what became social media accounts. And I, I think even the, the the idea of limiting human thought to a, a very tiny amount of, of words and letters that you were allowed to use to express your ideas was itself a direct attack on the mind on top, on top of everything else. Yeah, and, and that is again, the coding uh, within the agents uh, in the simulation is that limiting, that limiting factor. So uh, individual ignorance, but working in an orchestrated manner to create uh, sophisticated complex systems. And I would say in some ways, like that sort of speaks to this idea of this, the symphony that he was talking about with the, the whole Belt and Road being this symphony is that individual small parts uh, come together for something uh, more complex and sophisticated. So yeah, I think that the whole idea that now people are like rallying around Elon Musk, who's championing Twitter as the platform, the battlefield for our freedom is just getting people out of reality into this very controlled digital space where they yeah. already are depriving their minds of the, the ability to process deeper thoughts and communicate because you can't, you're not allowed <laughs> in that domain. Right. On top of the fact that you have these bots and other things like mapping out and manipulating us on top of that, like it's, it's, it's yeah. wild. Okay. And so I think that's really good. Um, I think of that, that, that whole segment, um, that was the the only piece. Most of this was around surveillance uh, and like the deep state surveillance framework. But this was actually getting to the next level, which was it's not just um, surveillance, but it's surveillance to a certain end, which is to steer people into certain behaviors that are advantageous to the overall system as a whole. And so, again, not... I think it goes beyond the geopolitics into uh, in the future, our actions as avatars in uh, the digital space and extended reality will be linked to uh, the computational element. So I think that c covers that section. And then we have just a little bit more, I think. We've got to go over here to uh, uh, the Sri Lanka situation. I think I'm going to take uh, a quick pause and um, and then we'll get back and we'll talk about uh, Sri Lanka with Vedana Shiva, uh, which is, is kind of an interesting counterpoint to the 
the the nuclear reactor they're in this point they're they're pushing technology and sort of the next phase of the green revolution okay so this section over here uh deals with sri lanka and it was kind of a pivot in the the article uh let's see uh here uh fox green is in the, the article about rfk jr he frames this malthusian environmental agenda and he's linking rfk jr's connections to vedana shiva uh, and her uh, pitch for organic farming and what happened in Sri Lanka and sort of framing the econo economic uh, fallout of, you know, debt finance uh, to the farming. And if you actually, if you Google Sri Lanka and organic farming, you'll see a lot of articles. So I think definitely the plan was to uplift this. The, uh, there wasn't a famine and a food shortage that led to the economic crash. In many respects, it was the economic crash that happened first, and then it back ended into the food situation. So I'm not saying that there wasn't anything with the food, but it, the, the, the economic catastrophe wasn't simply because food prices had gotten too high. It was part of a much more complex uh, structured debt finance problem in the country and um, mismanagement and predatory finance lending. So again, but for the purposes of this article, he needs to like put another thing on RFK Jr. So instead of like in my in my case, I was talking about him being, you know, setting up bottled waters for fake environmentalism and being funded by the Rockefeller Foundation and being a managing partner in a venture capital firm in emerging technologies. But they weren't going to go in that direction or maybe they didn't know to go in that direction. So instead they said, oh, look, he's aligned with Vedana Shiva, who's Club of Rome and promoting organic agriculture. Um, and organic agriculture is in and of itself Malthusian because it is insufficient. Um, and later on, they, they go on to say that they're very much an advocate of uh, industrial agriculture, which, as we know, the next phase is going to be um, nanotechnology, precision agriculture, robots, drones, um, and then ultimately it's going to go into warehouses uh, where it's all grown under lights and it's not going to actually have much of any nutrition. So you're going to have uh, denatured food items that are going to be set up in industrial uh, settings and totally outside of the environment, which I think is terribly unnatural. So they're setting up kind of a bad choice for themselves. But uh, so that's the opening of the, the Malthusian environmental agenda is that RFK Jr. has teamed up with the, the Vedana Shiva Club of Rome. Now, the Club of Rome part is actually really important. And there are a lot of people out there who think that she's wonderful. And, you know, I have you know, my concerns with, with her about that for sure. Uh, you know, and, and here's just an image with a video of her speaking at some uh, some event. I can't quite, it's a little bit too small for me to read. Uh, but it, it describes her as uh, a chairperson of the International Forum in Globalization and a member of the Club of Rome. Uh, and she is part of, again, degrowth uh, concept work, research and degrowth. So again, we can debate growth versus degrowth. Um, if we're doing growth, I'd like to know what kind of growth it is that we're not doing the internet of bio nano things and extended reality, what that growth looks like. Um, you know, and again, when you listen to the clips, the growth that they're talking about, like in agriculture is industrial agriculture and uh, the Green Revolution 2.0, which is really bounded in nanotechnology and bioengineering. Um, so again, just to, to emphasize here, we, I've got limits to growth in my map. Uh, but it's connected over here, uh, up here a little ways is the Kenneth Boulding, the peace guy. Um, and and it, it comes out of MIT and MIT is the digital currency, uh, you know, crypto economics and impact finance space and also, you know, very deeply into ed tech. Um, and then th this is sort of my, 
my issue with Vedana Shiva is here, here we've got her tweeting uh, in March of 2019 with uh, Greta. Uh, wonderful joining you in Paris, Greta. And, you know, of course, Corey Morningstar has done a lot of work exposing the corporate environmental agenda. And I think that's important uh, because there are a lot of people who actually believe in uh, actually trying to heal the earth and address environmental injustice uh, that aren't part of the UNA and Sustainable Development Goals, who still identify with sort of more progressive policies uh, that don't have anything to do with Greta and Club of Rome. But that doesn't mean that we don't care about the planet and that there aren't other ways of thinking about it. So again, that is uh, that is from the Space Commune article, the focus on Sri Lanka and Vedana Shiva. So I'm going to, uh, I'll run this clip first. This is them talking about what happened in Sri Lanka. And again, setting up this idea of organic farming was the cause of the unrest and uh, setting up a color revolution in Sri Lanka. Hey, that's very provocative. It might piss some people off, but you pointed out something I think very important about Sri Lanka. And Sri Lanka is in a big crisis right now. Their food production capabilities have collapsed. This has a lot to do with the ideology that's been proposed and, and romanticized, not just by Bobby Kennedy Jr., but his close friendship with Vandana Shiva and, and Shiva's role in some of this mess that has been overlooked. Can you say something about that? Yeah. Um, so it wasn't covered much. I, I don't know if it was covered at all in mainstream news. Uh, um, there wasn't much on Twitter, but um, what little articles there that did come out, there's a few... Um, I think I linked to a few in the, in the, in the essay, but yeah, they, they've, Sri Lanka has been sort of crashing economically over the last few years. And it really hit, hit a point hard because they transitioned to hundred percent organic. Um, so they were cutting off all, um, Again, pointing out, he's saying that this economic crash has been coming for several years, but then they're pulling in like the, they're centering the organic agriculture piece fertilizer uh synthetic fertilizer is important because that's going to be a really a, a focus of nanotechnology and precision agriculture synthetic fertilizing methods for their farming and anybody who knows anything about farming um organic leads to way lower yields of crops because you can't they don't grow <laughs> as much you, you now, I would just point out this this idea of organic um, in terms of yield, because a lot of what they're promoting is uh, genetically modified uh, crops. And so I guess there's some, you know, cost benefit analysis of like, do you want more of something that is genetically engineered um, and maybe antithetical to natural life? Or do you do you want a smaller amount of something that is is viable food, you know, that is not mo genetically modified. And I so within this construct, they don't really address that what they're talking about in the, the Green Revolution was genetic modification, that that is something that was adopted. So again, you've got the yield, but you might have a whole lot of something that a lot of people have concerns about putting in their body. You can't get as rid of, uh, rid of as many pests, uh, pests on the plants. Um... Now, the other aspect clearly around the pests is now you have genetic modified seeds around the pest, then you have like more and more Roundup that are spraying for the pests. Like, do you want food that's coated in these chemicals? It's like a bad cycle. So I think it's sort of a false premise that's just one or the other, that like organic is, is terrible because it doesn't 
create the volume that that is wanted and the weeds too the weeds grow so this idea that organic um that you have to go all, all organic conveniently leads to having way lower yields um which sends uh, an economy and a population into disarray because then the less food there is, um, you know, the more scarce the, the prices go up, right? And the prices of food as a commodity um, influence everything else. So personally, I think it was a way to sort of backdoor set the stage for what could potentially be sort of a color color revolution that happened in Sri Lanka. Um, I didn't follow that story too closely, but I. Okay. And so I just want to point out, um, I, I think what's really central here is this idea, and he might be, be right about this, the idea that um, going, and I, and I haven't looked into it in great detail, but if they did shift to 100% organic in a very short time frame, clearly the soil and everything, it takes a while to transition land from industrial agriculture into uh, more regenerative processes. Now, I, we, our family has belonged to a CSA, community supported agriculture thing since at least for the past 18 years. Uh, and they're out in Berks County, which is about an hour and a half outside of Philadelphia. And, you know, early on in the process, the, the family uh, wanted to buy a larger farm that had been overrun with a lot of uh, uh, industrial agricultural crop farming and they wanted to make it more of a small truck farm and they had to uh, it took many years to bring it back in line you don't do it overnight and so it's important to understand in the agricultural sector is the debt finance stuff that was integrated into the economic collapse of Sri Lanka is embedded in the like the use of the IMF and the World Bank to push countries into uh, modernized agricultural practices that benefited uh, the global north largely. So they would say, well, we will, we will give you funding, but you have to stop making crops that feed your local people and make crops for export. And then you have to do it like this and you have to use these machines and you have to use these pesticides and you have to use these fertilizers. And so countries were taking out all of this debt to modernize and then they can never get out from under it and then they then they couldn't even feed their people because the crops that were assigned to them weren't necessarily food crops to sustain their local communities and that is all part of the globalization process so to sort of imagine that like the green revolution wasn't a predatory structure which later on they're going to try to say that it's great i think is is really misunderstanding the economic um strong armedness of these systems to 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 uh, go into countries and you know and again to manage the professional class uh, the elite people to go ahead and do that and make decisions and then push them down the chain on the regular people and later on I'm going to show some images around web3 finance because um, most of the world's agricultural production is from small holding farmers and Leo Saracino has been looking into that a lot over the past year and they're really trying to boost all of these farmers in Africa, in India, in Southeast Asia, uh, Indonesia, uh, into the digital economy. And they're doing it through crop insurance and package deals for like seed and fertilizer. And this is all happening on blockchain smart contracts. And these are investments of 
organizations in Silicon Valley to set all of this up because they want to control these small farmers. Now it's all being sold as convenience and benefit to them, but ultimately it's to get them onto the blockchain as a commodity that they can be managed and their families can be managed in relationship to the data. So it's the next iteration of the structural adjustment control, microfinance, um, really sharecropping types of stuff uh, to manage uh, these small holders, which could be very rebellious. I mean, we look at what happened with the Indian farmers' uh, revolt and their rebellion and their, their strong heartedness to stand for their land. Now, that's not Gaia death cult stuff. That is people who actually understand that their culture is embedded in the land on which they live and have for generations upon generations and to not have that taken from them uh, by modern technologies. And, you know, so these guys seem like they're all for going into the Green Revolution 2.0, which is nanotech and Web3 and drones and spraying uh, in the name of doubling down on what the Rockefellers had wanted in the first place. So, um, all right, so I'm just going to go on to the next clip. Uh, okay, so this is her saying that uh, uh, Vedana Shiva is, is opposing the, the Green Revolution stated in several publications she even takes i mean she takes credit for it for being you know the biggest influence on the government there to uh take this uh turn to all organic um and that's something that she pushes uh and she's somebody who I so again if that's what they did to push for all organic with no transition point that's a problem and i could see that that if that is the case that they wanted to create a crisis that that could create a crisis it doesn't mean that it's the wrong tendency, in my opinion. Actually speaks out. Um, her and and Bobby have talked many times. They're good friends. They talk all about how they hate the World Economic Forum and uh, Bill Gates because Bill Gates uh, and they're opposed to the Green Revolution and the Rockefellers who did the Green Revolution, which created this abundance of agriculture. through. So the Green Revolution created the abundance of agriculture, but it was also cultural imperialism of the Rockefellers and tied to the IMF and the World Bank and structural adjustment and changing agricultural exports. Fossil fuel and synthetic fertilizer. So again, liking the fossil fuels, liking the synthetic fertilizers. And the fertilizers are really important. Um, and they're opposed to that because it's, I think they think because it's poisoning us. They think it's poisoning us. We don't know, right? And so like, again, they don't say a whole lot about genetically modified food, but that's what's coming. And again, the Great Reset is all about that, right? Is the internet of agriculture and genetically uh, modifying all of us through our uh, the diet and through our gut microbiomes and to manage our vagus nerves. Like that's what's coming. Um, yeah, so yeah, we need to care about what we eat and the land that it's grown on. Um. And, and the insects and the pollinators and all of that. Like it's it's a complex dynamic ecosystem, which is something I'm sure Vernadsky understood very well. It's it's a complex symphony and a dance. It's not just a machine, which is how the Rockefellers treat it. That we have to go all nat it's this like kind of all natural right. movement. Well, it yeah. seems like like people tend to be duped by these um radicalized extremes you know and i think that when you have a state which becomes abuse ab ab abusive of its power so okay so this idea of the radicalized extreme and i would i would agree with that so if what was created was something that was a radical uh change and not moderate and not well thought out then it was meant to create a crisis um 
So here I just have some images about the, the Sri Lanka debt crisis. Again, um, it was talking about the, these ISB traps, these, these debt bonds, uh, that Sri Lanka's external debt stock tripled from 12% to 36%. Um, and the ISBs were a monster 70% of the government's annual interest payments, and they, they couldn't make the interest on the debt, especially after the lockdowns. And oh, who's coming in to save them? Well, that would be the IMF, which is giving $3 billion for a new fund, uh, extended fund facility arrangement, right? So you crash companies, you sorry, you crash countries, and then you, you swoop in to quote unquote, save them on your own terms. So this should be no shock to, to, uh, uh, green or Eret, that this is how this is how this works. Um, again, rethinking Sri Lanka's economic crisis. Uh, this is looking at the crisis of structural adjustment back to the 70s. And I thought it was really interesting that it said that Sri Lanka was the first country in South Asia to undergo structural adjustment and be set on a neoliberal trajectory in the 1970s. So I don't think you can just pick and choose and say, oh, it's organic agriculture that's the problem for Sri Lanka. It's something that's a long time in coming. Um, it, here it says the, the Sri Lankan economy has been crisis prone since liberalization in the late 1970s. It was the first country to undergo structural adjustment and be set on a neoliberal trajectory. Those economic changes brought about by the J.R. Jayawarenda government locally called the open economy reforms were pushed through with authoritarian power used not just for repression of minorities, but attacks on trade unions and the left more broadly. Tens of thousands of workers were thrown out of work. Free trade zones with little room for labor organizing were established and the workers movement is yet to recover. The economic bubble that began with the opening of the economy in the late 70s, propelled by the inflow of Western capital, started to peter out by 82. And then there were the pogroms, and it says in late 2009, uh, with, with the cataclysmic end to the war and authoritarian stability imposed by the Rajapaska regime that saw considerable inflow of global capital, albeit towards speculative ends. And so again, we jerk people around. We come in, we take over their economies, we, we create the situations that lead to war and then the recovery and then there, there's the crash and then we come back in. But it's Western capital that's calling the shots there. And I think we have to understand that. Um, again, here it's called the open economy. Um, the, uh, the, the This was predicated on the IMF or World Bank loans and that instead of rice, which is our principal food, uh, that is being imported and farmers are being pressured to grow cash crops for export. And then companies sell to the farmers on credit, seeds and fertilizers, insecticides and weedicides, which harms the environment and destroys the soil. Um, and so they were trying to mobilize against the World Bank policies to, again, uh, create cash crops for export as opposed to food crops for the people. And um, this is something I had mentioned earlier about Lovejoy. This is uh, with the Brookings, I think. They're talking for debt for adaptation swaps. So they they put these countries into debt and then they they force on them the climate, uh, climate change structures, um, which, uh, you know, I guess you could, you could maybe, you know, I don't know that the organic agriculture was framed as a climate, as a carbon thing, um, or if it was something else, but, all of this is being done from outside. And I do agree, uh, Fox Green did call this green imperialism, and it is green imperialism. But I think we don't need to necessarily uh, embrace Rockefeller uh, 2.0 uh, 
industrial food production, which will involve bio nanotechnology and blockchain uh, supply chain tracking uh, in order to to sort of find a better path. Uh, so again, here here's something I thought was quite interesting. It's a case study from uh, Columbia University on uh, food policy for developing countries, the role of the government in the global food system. And it's talking about uh, uh, Sri Lanka specifically and the fertilizer subsidy program, which it says is one of the longest lasting, most expensive and most politically sensitive policies implemented to promote rice cultivation in Sri Lanka. Started in 1962. Uh, at the, at the beginning of the Green Revolution to encourage farmers to switch from traditional rice to high yielding varieties that are responsive to chemical fertilizers. But the provision of the subsidy has become customary and successive governments have been under tremendous pressure to continue it despite budgetary constraints. So again, you tell people that they have to plant a different kind of rice uh, that is higher yielding but requires uh, chemical fertilizers and then you, you can make bank on the fertilizer and then you know, 70 years later, the people still haven't gotten out from under the fertilizer. So this idea of fertilizer as, as a, you know, a chain, the fertilizer is the green imperialism. And so they're talking about the Central Bank of Sh Sri Lanka and these uh, fertilizer surfaces and, and that a lot of, that there are environmentalists in Sri Lanka that are concerned about uh, the, the pollution of waterways uh, by heavy metals, cadmium, that are used in the application of inorganic fertilizer and that cadmium in the water, uh, as well as the plants, have led to increased prevalence of chronic renal failure. Uh, and that paddy cultivation is the livelihood opportunity for more than 1.8 million farmers. So the government has been under pressure to continue the subsidy. Uh, but th there are concerns, right? There are legitimate concerns about the impacts of health on the environment and on the people. And again, the fertilizer companies are making are making the money. And you know, I'll just say I, I made this map a while ago on the Green Revolution. And again, the Rockefeller uh, Foundation uh, set it up in Mexico uh, because they they were wanting to move oops, uh, into. Uh, like to bio into like chemistry uh, and they couldn't really do it in the US uh, during World War II. So they moved it into uh, Mexico and uh, Borlaug is uh, the guy who was uh, working on that. He later got the Nobel Peace Prize, but he was a research scientist at DuPont. So they were focused on corn and uh, wheat. Uh, later on, I think the Ford Foundation up here, they worked with the FAO of the United Nations and they were, uh, working on rice. And so I think they were more in Asia. And there was something called the Consultative Group for International Agricultural Research, a CGIAR. And so that's really been the lead on agritech and biotech, uh, with Mexico being a centerpiece. And again, uh, the, the, the use of the conditional cash transfer for uh, the tortilla subsidy in Mexico, I think is all very much connected to programmable money and health and wellness behaviors. Uh, and so I have over here, the Rockefeller Foundation is pushing a reset the table to transform the US food system. Uh, bites to sustain our, our bites, leveraging digital agriculture for the sustainable development goals. So you can't really talk about the Green Revolution 2.0 without talking about the UN SDGs because agriculture 4.0, the future of farming, is about CRISPR, bioprinting, drones, nanotechnology in the soil, all in the name of addressing UN SDG 2 uh, hunger. And this is agritech and agrotech, uh, smart fields, 
uh, robots, smart dust, uh, uh, connected to uh, uh, the, the, let's see, the, the NSF Engineering Research Center for the Internet of Things for Precision Agriculture, IoT for Ag. And uh, this goes to the National Nanotechnology Initiative. Um, so again, we're, this is all being done under the name of sustainability, but it's also in the name of industry and technology. So I guess my, my question is, if they're sort of pursuing the Vernadsky, we're not doing Malthusianism, but we're just going to uh, develop our intellect to the next level to address um, the needs to level up for our population, are we talking about uh, industrial food systems that are where our food is grown in warehouses, uh, where we do bioprinting, where we do gene editing, where uh, we replace human farmers with 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 robots, uh, with machine intelligence. Uh, these are all very real and valid questions. And so I feel like that was a very um, sort of throwaway discussion there that like, oh, well, we should totally support this next phase of uh, the green revolution because uh, we need it to not be Malthusian. But essentially then you're aligned with the Rockefellers. Like you can't get away from that. You're you're aligned with Rockefellers and structural adjustment and the World Bank and the IMF, which doesn't seem right. Um, and then also I would say this idea of creating hunger and uh, to force certain policies. Uh, the World Food Program, Leo has been doing a lot of looking into the agricultural systems tied to the World Food Program. And again, hunger is UN SDG 2. Uh, they're working on cash-based assistance for people in need. So if people, uh, either refugees or the poor or people in, uh, you know, uh, crises due to, you know, environmental, you know, weather catastrophes or war or whatever, uh, they are providing this cash-based assistance, but that's the digital programmable money, these conditional cash transfers. And uh, so the World Food Program is connected with places like Cello, which again, Leo has written on extensively at Silicon Icarus, Leo Saracino, uh, that Cello joins the World Food Program Innovation Accelerator, and they're working on blockchain-based cash transfer solutions to fight hunger. So yeah, so maybe it's not just a color revolution in Sri Lanka, like maybe it's about starving people out um, in the name of putting, giving organic agriculture a bad name because they're not transitioned properly, because certainly it does take time to move away from uh, decades upon decades of damaged soil and damaged water systems and into a regenerative process. But those regenerative processes are also going to be put on blockchain. So we have to be careful because a lot of the organics and the permaculture is being integrated into these blockchain systems. So uh, it's it's quite a tricky uh, bunch of landmines to sort out. But I wouldn't be surprised that they maybe did create a crisis on purpose to give organic agriculture a bad name and then to create an opportunity to offer up uh, food assistance on blockchain to advance those programs. So uh, I'll just mention here this Agritech platforms that is part of the, the Green Revolution 2.0. They're after the small holder farmers and, and that's happening through the UN. And here is the Harvard Advanced Leadership Initiative Social Impact Review, addressing the digital divide because they need to jump all of the, the small landholders into the next system. And this is a map that I made uh, with the radio ecologies talking about uh, de-climate, uh, these decentralized marketplaces in climate data, uh, insurance, uh, parametric insurance, ARBOL, uh, tied to crop insurance, and that's that's Leo's research area. And uh, then 
Over here, Chainlink is providing uh, uh, su support for the D-Climate Marketplace. It's also a member of the Lemonade AI for Social Impact. And this Lemonade Foundation is uh, connected to Pula Advisors, which is crop and livestock insurance. Now, it's based in Switzerland, but the co-founder, Rose Gozalinda, is uh, formerly with Pula InsureTech and uh, had worked at Syngenta Foundation in Kenya. And Syngenta and Novartis, they're, they're totally involved in uh, agro agrochemicals, agrobusiness. And it, you know it's important to know that uh, Syngenta is actually, it was formerly based in uh, Switzerland, uh, agricultural science and technology, but as of 2017 was bought by ChemChina. And again, uh, Eret is, is, is a big booster of China. So this Syngenta agriculture, uh, the, pushing the chemical fertilizer programs is fully in line with the interests of China, really, and, and <laughs> Switzerland, because it's all going to be on blockchain. Um, so, so yeah, we've got, and here's Arbol uh, working with uh, parametric crop insurance in Cambodia, uh, working with Chainlink. And again, uh, Chainlink is part of the Web3. And I'll just describe this platform. It's kind of, the language is kind of crazy. So this is, the, this is what uh, the Green Revolution 2.0 is. <clears throat> it's hooking all of these Global South farmers into Web3. Again, maybe for the symphony of the Belt and Road, <clears throat> um, so Belt and Road Symphony of Collective Consciousness. So they're working with ag <clears throat> sorry, AgriBuddy and D-Climate. Um, and D-Climate is a decentralized climate data. And AgriBuddy is an agri-tech platform that offers cashless financial services, so digital money, to farmers in a package of fertilizers, pesticides, seeds, drones, harvesters, agronomy advisory, and tractor services, and lets them pay at the end of the harvest by selling their crops to AgriBuddy, right? So doesn't this sound pretty much like exactly what we saw in the South after the Civil War? Like it's maybe maybe the people actually have the rights to their land. Maybe it's not straight up sharecropping, but this is, this is indentured servitude, right? On the blockchain framed as a social impact and closing the digital divide. And to me, this sounds like exactly what, whether they understand it or not, what, what Fox Green and Matthew Aaron are, are talking about. Um, so, and then the other thing is, I just wanna talk about the nano fertilizer. I've talked about that quite a bit, but this is precision agriculture. And I have grave concerns of what happens when we start to get uh, nanoparticles, uh, which is probably already coming down out of the geoengineering, but all of these nano nanoparticles putting that into the soil um, as an answer to the bad petrochemical fertilizers, now we're going to have the nano fertilizers. And I don't think that there's been enough research at all done on the safety of that and what the impacts of that are on, uh, the, on the soil and on uh, water systems. So, uh, so yeah, so the nano fertilizer is coming. And let's see. Have I done all of the agritech? Oh, I haven't done all of it. So, okay. So AgriBuddy, then we have, uh, Leo shared this with me. Uh, this is from Mercy Corps, that they're bundling their insurance with inputs like seeds and fertilizer. So these things come bundled with the fertilizers. That's why they have to keep everybody uh, embedded in this system. And again, this is talking about a Pula, uh, the uh, oh this is this is what Leo wrote so I'm just gonna read this and thank you Leo this is uh, as yet uh, still a work in progress but this is talking about Pula and the woman who was with Syngenta 
Pula is an insurance tech firm founded by Rose Goslinda, former head of Syngenta's foundation. In 2018, Pula closed a $1 million seed investment from Rocher Participations. Axion Venture Lab, Omidyar Network, and other angel investors participated in that round. The Series A round was led by TLCom Capital, with participation from Women's World Banking. At the Syngenta Foundation, Goslinda helped create Kilmo Salma, the first microinsurance product to be distributed and implemented over a mobile phone network. <clears throat> Kilmo Salma connected farmers to traditional insurers using an index-based system where payouts were determined by the rain. Later renamed Accra Africa, the company boasts of getting over 1.3 million farmers insurance. That means that they're all on blockchain and connected into uh, the reset, right, of the, in the next phase industrial development of human capital. Uh, I just added that. Okay. Uh, so, okay, Safaricom uh, or Safricom, the telecom provider uh, enabling the mobile phone-based insurance product, continues to play a major role in bringing more rural Africans into the, into the digital fold. I wrote, and this is Leo, uh, last spring about their blockchain-enabled ag fintech partnership with Cinch Markets. Pula reports similar numbers from their own crop insurance index-based products for smallholding farmers. They also recommend to farms uh, practices to farms based on data collection. And again, that's the precision agriculture. So, right, don't do organic and, and understand, like, be in resonance with the land. Just look at the data. Like, look at the prediction modeling. And again, I think Eric said that he's kind of opposed to that, but at the same time is promoting uh, telecoms and growth and new infrastructure and everything that would be this new kind of infrastructure. Uh, Pula collects unique farmer data that allows for synchronized local advice. The agronomy tips are individualized based on the farmer's unique data. So digital twins of farms. Um, and uh, and uh, local climate and agronomic conditions, with which Pula monitors using satellite and ground data, as well as feedback from farmers through local call centers. Um, and so a lot of that, again, a lot of the sensor-based technologies is, is emitting frequencies that are not going to be good and resonating with natural life and the microbial life of the soil. Um, Ethrisk, another example of blockchain-based insurance protocols, worked with Mercy Corps and uh, Acre Africa as well. Mercy Corps Ventures is invested in Pula. So uh, that's what the agritech stuff looks like. It looks like a lot of uh, farmers of the global south being put on blockchain and managed as cybernetic agents in the game. Uh, okay, so... All right, so here's them talking about the technology. <laughs> They're talking about iterating it, uh, taking care of more people, a better technology takes more care of more people. Uh, again, Fox Green is saying, don't be afraid of AI. Um, you know, there's he, he's ad advancing the, you know, uh, utopian uh, technology version of we're all going to be um, laying back and being creative that this is the AI economy that he's adopting as opposed to we're all going to be uh, piloting 10 different robots in 10 different Walmarts, uh, the globotic scenario. And I don't know if, if Fox Green doesn't know about the uh, sanctuary AI and globotics and uh, the operating one person operating 10 different robots in 10 different Walmarts. But if not, he needs to get up to speed with Richard Baldwin and globotics because that's that's actually like he's just like imagining a little bit of a pipe dream there. So let me run this clip. 
Absolutely. I mean, I feel like that comes up over and over again, where people get mad at the technology and they say, well, the technology must be the problem rather than saying it's the way the technology is being used. And rather than perfecting on an, on an idea, they say, let's just burn it all down. It didn't turn out, per you know, we did a sketch and it didn't per turn out like a perfect drawing. So let's just burn it all down, you know, never try it again. No, you have to, you have to iterate on things to make sure they work. And, um, of course they're not going to be perfect the first time. Um, and technology overall is a good thing. And, uh, I think people forget that they get caught up in the politics. They get caught up in all, all these other things. And they forget the bottom line is that we need to take care of people. And that's what we, that's what technology does. Is it okay, so we need to think about this framing, right? Technology to take care of people. That's what the per per pervasive computing is gonna be doing, taking care of us. <laughs> and again, do we want that? Is that what we've decided? And who is coding that technology that is taking care of us? Um, does the, the woman who's in Kenya, who's doing the farming in Harvard is coming in to offer them like a solution to their digital divide problem and sell them on some blockchain parametric insurance and, uh, you know, precision agricultural uh, seeds and fertilizer packages? Or like, do the, does she want to actually be her own business person on her own land and decide her own things outside of the reach of the Harvard Business School folks, right? And Syngenta and everyone else who's trying to get their business into the farmer's uh, soil. Um, these are all things we should be asking. Is it the better technology takes care of more people? <laughs> and that's like the bottom line. That could be the world brain. Right. The better technology takes care of the most people. Um, and again, yeah. Is that the belt web three belt and road initiative of cosmic consciousness to the world sensorium possibly? So to say like, well, you know, this technology, I mean, it's, it's happening now with AI, right? Is that people are scared of it. Um, because they think that it's gonna, the technology itself is bad. Right. And we have to get rid of no technology. The, the, the technology of AI itself doesn't necessarily have to be bad. If AI can take over doing, you know, mundane jobs that human beings could be better served with their, you know, creative powers to do mundane jobs like being a teacher or being a caregiver or a doctor or whatever, like, yeah, that the the the. The idea is that the AI is going to replace all many, many, many jobs. You know, lawyers, uh, filmmakers, artists. Like, yeah, the, the AI is after all of it, uh, all of it, Fox. More cutting edge work, then that's a good thing, right? Um, at, every, at every point in human history, there were people who were afraid that, oh, this new technology is going to change everything for the worse, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but, and it goes back to nuclear power too, right? Um, nuclear power did give us the bomb, but it also gave us this. It actually gave us the environmental movement. <laughs> like once you understand the Atomic Energy Commission and the International Geophysical Year and the environmental movement, like, yeah, it gave us, the, it's not just Huxley, it's the Atomic Energy. Revolutionary energy, so. And biophysics. It's not the technology, it's how it's being used. Absolutely. Okay, so that's the tool. It's not the tool, it's how you use it. It's how you use the tool. Okay. Um, okay. So this is, this is the clip I'm, when I'm listening to this, I'm hearing, okay, so is the middle ground agritech is, is this idea of finding the middle ground in the agricultural transition, uh, 
what is being laid out by the Web3 uh, industrial agriculture. And to me, it sounds like that's probably what they're imagining. So this is the next clip. So I think yep. energy policy-wise, the Green Revolution, it's, it's, it's one of these things which when you look at it, what created it? Did the Rockefeller Foundation, which did fund it, not all of it, but it, it, the Rockefeller Foundation was there putting money into mm -hmm. technologies that involved um, GMOs and, and doing things like that. But did they make it happen? Yes, they made it happen. <laughs> they did make it happen. And then later the Ford Foundation. But yes, it was their baby. Or were they trying to con take control of the Green Revolution's dynamic that was created by something good? No, they created it. Like that that's a backwards, like, I'm sorry, Matthew, that doesn't work. They built it. They built it to take control of the agriculture of the global south to control the health and well-being of people and to saddle them with structural debt. That's what happened. And then the new phase is coming. It wasn't going to be a good thing. And later on, he's going to talk a little bit about how somehow uh, this made more food. So it doesn't quite fit with the depopulation agenda. And he can't quite figure that part out either. But I would say ultimately it's about control. And it's about control of people towards, again, moving in this trajectory of a biohybrid computing system. And the people of the global south, I think, if you're understanding what uh, Tyler Desjardins and Riser and these folks were talking about is the, the psychical level, the people who are more connected to their lands, uh, to the natural cycles, uh, who have uh, more melanin processing, which is a complex optical material, uh, who, the pineal gland, like more robust access, those are going to be the people that you want contained in your ant computer because they're going to have uh, be able to tap into places that other people can't. So, you know, it's hard to say, did they know this in the late 1940s that this is where it was all going? But some days I, I think that maybe somebody can step outside the simulation and sort of take a look and go, okay, this is, this is how it's going to be. So I wouldn't put it past them that this was always the plan to contain the global south for this coming purpose of the biohybrid supercomputer uh, with the probably the secret uh, secret special ingredient they're looking for is the pineal gland and melanin in optical and photonic computing. Because the effects of it were, I think it's been pretty proven that well over 200 million people, if not more, were saved from famine by the new types of crops that didn't just break when there was a monsoon. Now, I would point out here, too, the issues with the famine is often these famines are manufactured by outside interests. And that was a key part of uh, what Raul brought up about uh, Nigeria when he did his series about Nigeria and in, in their um, quote unquote independence and then how the civil war was managed afterwards to advance the humanitarian aid system that would later control it for that phase and now the humanitarian aid is pushing in the the web3 smart contract systems that that was the initial setup but what controlling um controlling food systems and famine is a key way to manage people and it, often those famines are manufactured or that could produce more yeah. yields even in drought weather um, I don't think the Rockefeller depopulation fanatics actually liked having more people avoid death by famine, but what did occur under globalization is that a lot of these things were, uh, were privatized by Cargill and Monsanto and... 
So I don't know what he means, like that they were privatized. I mean, the, the Rockefellers, uh, Borlaug came out of DuPont. It wasn't like it just, oh, the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation developed these technologies aside from private industry. Like it was all embedded from the beginning. So it wasn't like it was going to be some charitable enterprise and then it became not a charitable enterprise. It was baked into, uh, the plan was always to incorporate the petrochemical industries into the program of the, the GMO food systems. And Archfield Daniels Midland that only cared about extracting profit and not really producing vitamin rich food, um, which has its own yeah. problems too. So now you got this reaction where you got the misuse of this technology and then people like Vandana Shiva and, and- The misuse of the technology again. So the, the petro, I just wanna emphasize this, the petrochemicals and the GMOs and the debt associated with all of that is something that they're imagining as the good technology. Others who are then saying, well, thus it's the technology itself that's, the, that's to blame. But then the effects of them doing what they do is to create more scarcity, as we've seen in the case of the lack of food production now that, you know, surprise, surprise, just like windmills couldn't supplement the lost energy from a closed down nuclear reactor, local mini, you know, micro farms doing purely organic cropping uh, uh, farming couldn't supplant the lost uh, production from the shutdown industrial uh, farms either. So I, I'm not quite sure how the two of them are not seeing the fact that these are manufactured problems. <laughs> I mean, to me, it seems very clear that they create the problem to offer you the solution. So there's got to be some yeah. middle ground, right? Like some the middle ground. So this is what they're setting up is the middle ground. The middle ground is some sort of Web3 regenerative finance agriculture where they will transition, um, you know, the just transition, and they'll do that uh, with digital technologies and the creation of all sorts of investment and gambling opportunities in new insurance markets uh, for uh, hedge funds managed by AI to run. So this this is the plan. I mean, this is this this is the middle ground. So I just I wish they understood that they create the crisis to create the answer that they want. And the answer that they want, I think, is one next gen decentralized uh, nuclear uh, reactors uh, with radioisotope technologies, and then uh, blockchain regenerative finance where they uh, harness organic agricultural practices and take it away from uh, people at the village level and their local culture. And then they integrate it into global debt finance systems with military technology. That seems like what they're talking about. Some way to find the best of both worlds. So I think- yep. Yeah, the best of both worlds. Okay. So uh, so this is, okay. So, so this is where um, he's talking a bit about there's two separate instances, and I think this is really important. So um, these are both of Matthew talking about government as technology. And, you know, and this is something that I spoke about early on, uh, like in the fall of 2020, about electronic governance, that the, the idea of health passports and digital identity wasn't just a, a health situation. It was definitely about many other things tied to the UN SDGs and the human capital uh, impact investing and electronic governance was center. And that's Estonia and that's Israel and that's these other nations, now Ukraine coming online, that the electronic governance is central. And then later I was doing the work in my descent map around uh, this idea of radical participatory democracy and then it's gonna happen through tokens and it's gonna happen through your AI voting agent. And um, again, Sebs has talked about futarchy and the idea of creating these betting markets in 
policy, which is something that Jeffrey Yass from Susquehanna International Group is proposing. So all of these new makeovers of the idea of democracy and governance, where governance is has to be understood as cybernetics. And you know, I know that Matthew has done, you know, he's written about cybernetics and the Macy conferences, so he should understand that. But when he's talking about um, essentially creating uh, governance as units towards some goal-oriented behavior, I think that this sounds a lot like uh, everything that we're hearing in terms of um, the decentralized government on blockchain and token engineering and uh, humans participating through tokenized voting. And uh, this is this collective emergent behavior of the ant computer is a collective governance and distributed cognition. So I'm going to play two clips, which are similar. One is from his talk with Fox Green. The other one is from the talk with the last American vagabond. And like, listen, if you hear the what I hear in what he's talking about as government as technology. Uh, the way I think of the political systems that we that we create and tune and, and redraft and design and tune. I think that the tuning is important. And that's, uh, again, an update. Um, it's sort of like a metaphysical technology, you know, like metaphysical technology. That's an interesting phrase. It's like a machinery of they can call it the machinery of government machinery of government. That sounds like a decentralized autonomous organization. But we often yeah. don't think about the implications of those words. But it's like you, you, if you when you have a constitution of any nation, it's like a, a hypothesis with a purpose, a design intention that is outlined in it. So that is what the token engineering does, is there is a purpose and then the code of the smart contracting is meant to shape the, the, the activity of the agents in, the, in whatever the scenario is towards that end, towards that designed end. And then a whole bunch of me mechanisms in the articles that are all supposed to economically, politically, judicially work together as moving parts to make and actualize as best as possible those concepts in the constitution. In the and that would be the Web3 grid. Design blueprint. But it really is that too. It's it's everything is is technology and government as well as the material expression of technology of, of scientific discoveries have, will always have moral or immoral intentions, designs, ideas that are right or wrong. That are and, and then the question is, because again, Fox Green is saying we shouldn't be afraid of AI, but the moral or immoral intentions Increasingly, it's going to be the machines that are doing the programming of the smart contract layers towards the certain outcome. It's not going to be people. So can can an AI be moral or immoral or is it something else? That are going to animate their behavior and execution. And if we don't learn how to see what those invisible but real principles and intentions and, and are, and it's not just, you know, we, we, won't, we won't be able to do very much except blame the technology itself like little crybaby, crybabies. But then people say, oh, but then you're a conspiracy theorist. Because you, if you think about intentions animating politics and designs, you're a conspiracy. So intentions animating politics and design. So I think, again, the intention, this is goal-setting behavior, which is the cybernetics. Theorist and should not be respected in polite society. So we'll just be scientific instead. <laughs> That's right. Be totally objective. We'll let the machines decide for us. That's where you get into that kind of utilitarian mindset of like. But see, I don't think that they understand that what they're setting up is utilitarian. Like if you can't recognize what's coming, that's what you're going to get because that's the trajectory that's in place is the machines are going to decide.
Like, well, it's just, we just have to listen to the numbers, right? But well, who's crunching these numbers, right? Somebody designed a system to crunch these numbers. And now you're saying, no, that's objective truth. No, objective truth can only be found out between human beings, you know, speaking to each other and, and having a dialogue. And uh, Yeah, so I, I think that that's, you know, I think their heart is in the right place. This idea that you don't want machines making these decisions and human interaction is important, but they're missing the point that what is coming with government as a technology, that's e-government and what works government and all the stuff I've been talking about, about impact finance in the government um, and DAOs and framing it as the commons, uh, what's coming with that. And then, and then the fact that the decentralized power grid in these smart villages are, are the planned delivery system for the smart government. And it will be the machines, um, but they haven't learned to recognize it yet. Um, and so, so this is the second one, again, him speaking at the, within the last American Vagabond uh, discussion group, again, about government as technology. Most forms of technology, most forms, are, are relatively, relatively neutral, and it's really our intentions, our, our, our moral compass, which infuses value negative or positive into whatever technology it is. Now, I would say what's coming is under the, this Web3 discussion is our plans to program a moral economy. Like that is what the circular economy is about, stakeholder capitalism. They're framing it, the, the branding of this is as a moral economy. And again, that goes back to Kenneth Boulding and his proto ESG ideas of moral economics. Uh, tied to uh, limits to growth, you know, the, the, the life on the spaceship Earth. And we were talking about social media and how this this stuff emerged in the insidious cesspool of MK Ultra Tavistockian operatives. You know, obviously with very very nefarious intentions. However, however, when humans are humans, we are creative and we can find a way. Kind of like you know the Aikido's the, the Aikido technique of using your enemies' uh, force against them. You're not really going like medically against an opposing power. And we find that human beings, being outside the box thinkers, when we're at the best. Uh, we can use whatever we, is thrown at us to do good, you know. So it's kind of ironic because like some of my earliest run-ins with people about blockchain were with Derek. <laughs> so again, it's the whole like, it's just it's just a tool. It's how you use it. Or you can, you know, you can leverage it for good. Um, yeah, so it's it's kind of interesting that he's giving this pitch and Derek Derek is there in this scene. To varying degrees. And we saw Eva right. Bartlett, we saw Vanessa Billy, we saw so many people utilize social media to get truth out there into the zeitgeist, which that matters. And like you said, yeah. So the idea of getting the truth out into the zeitgeist in social media. And so I guess that that sort of indicates that they're not quite understanding what social media is, that it is about uh, about steering and creating uh, subunits that can be marked and tagged and managed further on. And, and you know, I'm, not, I'm trying not to judge because clearly like I'm also on, a, on still some social media, but especially Twitter and these other spaces. Uh, Again, I keep saying they don't mind resistance as long as it can be watched and managed. And so uh, what kind of success is that? Is that the success in helping better characterize uh, certain interest groups around uh, geopolitical issues? And, and the way I think about it, philosophically, like government itself is kind of like a metaphysical technology of, of a sort, you know. So again, with the metaphysical technology, I think that's an interesting wording there. Like in the sense that it, there's machinery of government and again, machinery of government, metaphysical technology. So that's that's an interesting framing. It just it's not something you see, but there's parts that have to move together for a whole, a purpose, which is what you sort of expect when you're designing a machine. Some machines can be 
like an- so again when you're designing a machine so they're the machine of governance so that is token economics like that is exactly what is coming out of the token engineering folks in vienna engine or whatever a lot of parts moving together it could be less effective it could be crap it could be designed to blow maybe you know <laughs> um right. and it's like that with better and worse forms of uh governmental systems too and all that to say even though you have a lot of these things that are uh, poisoned, that are co-opted by agencies that are part of a death cult that want to use all of these these things to kill us at the same. So again, with the death cult, right? They're not trying to kill us all. They're they're probably trying to maim a lot of people and use a lot of wearable technology, but they really want to track us, tag us, and use us in their machine. Time, you know, there's no there's all there's nothing to stop good people from utilizing these technologies in a way that actually allows again the truth to ampl be amplified. Okay, the truth to be amplified in what sense, right? Because they're paying attention to that, this idea of amplifying the truth. They're fine with truth existing as long as they can manage the people who know whatever the truth. And like, what do you imagine the truth is, right? I mean, it's 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 very it's a very slippery thing. What what is the truth? Um, but yeah, as long as we're doing it in public, then they know, and you know, they're able to know it and manage it. So yeah, good on you, man. I agree. Good. Okay, and this is, I guess, Derek is maybe still running. Is he, is he running for mayor of Houston or something like that? It's about his political campaign. But um, again, uh, government as metaphysical technology and a machine um, is quite interesting. It's quite an interesting take. Um, so I'm just working my way through here. Um, again, I think that the plan is is really to come up with a way to do uh, regenerative finance. I think they're working to thread the needle so RFK Jr. can come out um, you know, why was so much of the resistance put on blockchain? Well, maybe it's so that, you know, in the future when RFK Jr. comes out as pro blockchain, you know, you know, his climate stuff, if you can put it on blockchain, people will be all lined up for that. Um, we have the, the regenerative finance, the impact, uh, you know, impact data that's going into Ocean Protocol. Uh, so refi is all going on blockchain. So maybe if he can sell the green people that it's all gonna be on blockchain, that they'll, uh, that the resistance will, um, you know, back it, right? If, if they can make it hip, you know, hip and edgy with blockchain and soul bound tokens. Um, I can see that so much of the organic and permaculture is going into regenerative finance. So uh, here it says, uh, Multiana explains that often refi is seen as synonymous with climate, and while that is a pillar, refi has enabled tangible and accessible use cases. Users can plug in and participate in models and systems that increase overall prosperity and that of the ecosystem. Um, stabilizing the climate and biodiversity and also keeping equitable access within global communities. So, I, you know, I, I think that's, that's where they're going to work, to bring the... Um, environmental warrior RFK Jr. Uh, together with the resistance is that they're going to try to reframe the climate stuff within a regenerative finance blockchain space with maybe some nuclear and get people to go along. And a center of the regenerative finance, again, is this regen network. It's in Great Barrington. Great Barrington is also where uh, you know, a great Barrington Declaration, but also uh, the Schumacher Center for Community Economics. So a lot of these community economic things that are coming together, um, uh, ecological assets for the refi economy. And, you know, it's interesting to me that uh, Kingston is just, let's see, it's an hour. Uh, it's about 60 miles from Great Barrington. So not so far, uh, not so far as we go. I'm, I'm sure that Mr. Buffett is familiar with what's going on at Great Barrington. Um, 
yeah, the Schumacher Center for New Economics was started in 1980 in Great Barrington. And th this is linked into this idea of local currencies. Uh, and, you know, one of the people who is connected with the Schumacher Center is this guy, David Bollier, or Bollier, um, who is the head of their Reinventing the Commons program. And so that this is what is coming, is that, that they're going to use blockchain to reinvent the commons as an open air prison, I guess, and computer. And here he is, he, he's involved in sociocracy and ID3, the digital identity programs with John Clippinger. And it turns out he also, uh, oh, I don't have that. Well, he, he's, he's an editor on this book from Bitcoin to Burning Man and Beyond with John Clippinger uh, from MIT uh, Media Lab, who was working with Sandy Pentland on social physics. So, um, yeah, I think that they're, they're, the middle ground is uh, agritech regenerative finance, and we'll, we'll see if they can, they're going to be able to sell RFK Jr. and get him on board and make it all palatable. Uh, let me see. I think, okay, so this, this might be one of my last things. So this is the world as a cyber physical system. So I have a few. These are from one of my favorite people, Michael Zargam of Block Science, um, and Actually, they might not all be Michael Zargam. They might be some other people from sort of the, the regenerative finance space. But talking about turning the world into a simulation on blockchain. A large sort of cyber physical system, which I'll define later, um, which is the whole world. And that world has issues in its own right. And I'm sort of interested in ways that we can use our understanding of systems to change it for the better. Um, so my talk is actually about cybernetics, which you may or may not have heard of. Um, I'm going to use this sort of limited definition where we talk about the domain of social science and economics and the methods from complexity science and systems engineering. It's more than that, but I'm not going to try to explain this whole diagram or the several transdisciplinary definitions that exist. But what really matters is that this is sort of a formal science of steering systems and not necessarily in the sense of centralized control but in the sense of systems that have their own objectives, wants, needs, and they're sort of co-steering each other. It's that sounds a little bit like what Matthew Eric was saying about the, the governance technology, systems that are co-steering each other. The sort of critical, sort of semi-formal field that's used to understand the way systems interact with each other came about in the 40s. And actually, I'll, I'll jump to this slide. Brief history from way back till recently, you have cybernetics is actually um, coined with respect to the Plato's reference about self the, the study of self-governance in one of his texts. The word cybernetic cybernetique was first used by Ampere to refer to the study of the science of government. And in fact, its contemporary definition is related to the early control systems and economic network theory that was being applied to everything from evolutionary biology. So evolutionary biology, this is where the free market, the econophysics and the biophysics are merging. To other social and economic regulatory systems. Okay, so that's, so there we've got Zargam, that's the first one. And then this is one where they talk about uh, token engineering being like SimCity, only you can walk into it. It's a little bit like SimCity, but you get to step into the city afterwards. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it reminds me a bit of, you can even go more extreme, you know, like um, what I'm trying This is Trent McConaughey of Ocean Protocol speaking now. Cometh, right? Um, which is basically an AMM wrapped by a video game. 
uh, and uh, I, I, I love it, right? Because it looks like a video game, but you're actually doing AMM training. And um, this version here, right, is doesn't look like a video game yet, but it already gives you a bit of that feel and that insight, right? And you know, imagine you know, two years from now, someone does something like Cometh did, but for this too as well, right? And it can come there, and maybe it will look like SimCity. <laughs> Who knows? So. Okay, so this is idea of like life is a video game, uh, video game design and gamification and collective uh, problem solving. Uh, this is Zargam on uh, token economics. Let me move myself down here. Token systems, token economies. For starters, the economic systems are the things that we really care about, right? We might be engineering tokens, but the, the tokens are just sort of this now tangible economic component. It's a representation of a, a thing or a right or a, could be a good, could be a service, it could be functionally a currency, but at the end of the day, we actually engineer them in order to drive a certain behavior in the economic system as a whole, which is actually a level of abstraction above the software itself. And I try to make this point pretty closely because often I, when I first get involved with a project, I get handed a protocol specification and I'm like, cool, that's the plant of the system. It's the machinery. This is what someone can do, but like, what will they do? What sort of happens? What's the extra layers of incentive control embedded through the tokens? Yeah, we don't really incentive control through the tokens. And again, I think this, this echoes a lot of what Eric said there about the machine of governance. No. Well, what are we trying to accomplish? High-level business goals. We kind of work our way down from a representation of the economic system of interest down to what elements are sort of still under our control to design, what elements are in fact sort of predetermined by the use case or the software, etc. And ultimately, we want to design generally steering systems. Um, and if people were around for Web3, I talked a lot about cybernetics and the sort of history of steering systems and what it means to design them. Okay, so yeah, so this is the cybernetics and the steering systems. And again, this is what we have to talk about. If what they're, they're asking us is to join an industrial development, non-Malthusian uh, Belt and Road Initiative, does it involve uh, steering systems, right? And who, who's steering and who is, who is participating? Um, and then let's see, this is, oh, I think that this is Jeremy Pitt again, talking about, he's the smart village guy on a socio-technical systems. And so this is what I, I want to sort of emphasize uh, is that this idea of um, that, that the built environment is going to be part of the, the steering and it's going to be being steered by AI. Uh, address societal problems by designing socio-technical systems, which would consist of interacting human and computational intelligences. So the human intelligence of got this way of doing things and our computational level intelligence which would have these algorithms for doing it so that's part of the token engineering is the computational intelligence and then see if we could make a, a socio-technical system that would solve a social problem was to try to understand and that's all of the stuff that's happening with web3 uh like the digital uh tokens programmable money uh sensor networks all, all of that is part of the socio-technical cyber-physical system and evaluate the social impact of what happens when we embed these socio-technical systems back into the very society that they inspired the original algorithms, is that there was this convergence on, on public interest technology. Now, I had no idea about that. 
the setting then for this is this mapping from PI double T to picture is of course the, the digital transformation for digital society, that thing which is going on all around us as we speak. Yeah, not just in Davos and not just by Klaus Schwab, it is the digital transformation of society everywhere. And I have people emailing me all the time about where they're seeing it all over their communities, this digital transformation. We observe the increasing use of digital tools and technology in the digitalization and automation of social and organizational processes, structures, and relations. Uh, and that is creating for us uh, a significant challenge. You know, we have to engineer ever more complex uh, cyber-physical and socio-technical systems. And the cyber-physical systems are those which are just going to be the ones that are, are interacting computational intelligences and our socio-technical systems are the ones which have our interacting human computational intelligences. So I just want to emphasize again, it's the this intersection between the human and the computational. And, and that is connected through the sensor networks. And you know, some of that is going to be dictated by money. Some of that is going to be dictated by energy. Some of them are going to be dictated by behavior credits. Um, but it's all connected in with the network system. And I think that the nuclear power is 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 key to a lot of these activities. And all right, so I think I think that's all the stuff about. Uh, Sri Lanka and cybernetic governance. And then uh, we're getting close to the end here. Uh, in this clip, it's interesting. He, uh, This is Fox Green, and he's talking about green imperialism and underdeveloping Africa. And this idea that we need the economic growth and that, that you know, the global north has been controlling the global south through underdevelopment, which I don't disagree with uh, generally, but I think that there are plans to develop Africa and India and Latin America, but they're coming from the global north and they're often being executed through a, uh, an, a, a professional class that's been educated in the West and groomed to think that um, the global north way of doing things and the sort of uh, technologically driven focus is the, the primary objective. So it's being done through outside interests, but through essentially containing the consciousness of, you know, the the uh, professional class, the political class to go ahead and go in and carry out uh, these ideas that have been sold to them as as beneficial, you know, disruptive innovation, this sort of thing. So uh, Africa is definitely going to be developed, uh, but probably not by uh, working class Africans. Need to learn fast if he's going to properly actualize those beautiful ideals. Yeah, um, that we need to embrace growth. Economic growth is good and that human beings are not a virus on the planet. Um, I, that's the thing, right, is imperialism takes many forms. It's not just guns and hot war and nuclear war. It's also keeping countries impoverished. Now, it would be good at this point if they incorporated some analysis of, of the other part of the sustainable development goals outside of energy, including the human capital finance part. But nobody seems to be able to do that yet. But that's the keeping people in poverty and managing them. That's where the Internet of Bodies and digital identity fits into telemedicine, uh, ed tech, uh, food systems management, uh, smart housing, all of that is where uh, they, they keep people in poverty to manage them. And, and again, the, the, I often talk about it, the model being the, the reservation system that was developed here in the United States.
um, specifically like Africa, right? Africa is under the IPCC, you know, regulations of cutting carbon and CO, you know, CO2 emissions and whatnot. Um, they're trying to pre prevent countries like Africa from developing, or I should say uh, continents like Africa, countries within Africa uh, from developing. Their so I would say what they want from the global south is they want to access the human capital to build the metaverse and they want to do it to undercut wages in the global north and they want to do it to condition people um, to live in extended reality and that opening up those labor markets once they get to the point of natural language processing like automated processing uh, that's the goal and so no it's not going to be underdeveloped it's going to be developed for a very specific purpose um, but not necessarily to improve life on the planet for all people. It's, it's for, to, to build out this next empire. Resources, uh, which they have not been able to due to imperialism. And this is all done under the guise of, oh, we need, you know, we need natural ways of farming and uh, these supposedly better forms of energy, which they're not. They're uh, opposed to nuclear, opposed to fossil fuel, and they want everyone to just have wind, wind turbines and solar panels, which, you know, Africans cannot develop industry <laughs> on these forms of energy. So now I would say when I was doing my research at Penn and the the uh, the energy alternative energy center, they were specifically targeting Africa for nuclear development. So that for the next gen nuclear. Um, it is kind of a soft form of imperialism. I, I refer to it as green imperialism. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree that there is, there are imperialist actions going on, but I think to limit it by saying it's strictly about underdeveloping is to miss the point that, Africa is being developed, especially in its, well, one, in its uh, mineral resources, uh, which are all being put on blockchain, and, and Seb Solomon has written about that as a case study. Um, and then also the human capital. Uh, the natural capital is being blockchained as, a, as, a, as an impact investment uh, situation and also the mineral resources. <clears throat> and the human capital, uh, training up the people to code the extended reality uh, is also a part of that. Uh, so I have a few images here. Um, just again, Cardano is specifically targeting Africa uh, with, and, and you know, they've already blockchained all of the people of Ethiopia, starting with the children and the teachers. Um, Serifu is uh, a network, a grassroots economic that uh, Leo has talked a lot about. They're focusing on Kenya. Again, a lot of the digital money is connected to uh, telecom systems in Africa, not even smartphones, but dumb phones that can connect remotely and community centers to do digital payments. So Africa is a, a major focus of digital payment innovation. Um, and again, we have Cello, who is working in the, uh, the food space, uh, the, these, these humanitarian payment systems and refugees. And so here it says the Cello Foundation's new Africa Web3 startup helps African startup scale. So yeah, they're, they're going to develop certain kinds of uh, development in Africa. Here is an article from 2016 about Ethiopia uh, and the AI in the Sheba Valley. And they were uh, developing the, the AI mind behind uh, Hanson Robotics, the Sophia the Robot. And so again, Ben Gertzel targeted Ethiopia uh, very specifically. And then this is uh, Seb Solomon's uh, uh, article about French imperialism and crypto colonialism in the Central uh, African Republic and looking at uh, tokenizing minerals on blockchain and doing uh, digital uh, citizenship programs. And uh, 
I guess, Sango, a legal framework for uh, e-residencies and uh, digital ownership of assets and things. Uh, so this is uh, something that, that, that SEBS has, had developed. And then, again, I think Corey Morningstar had talked about this a while back on Twitter, but this idea of essentially circling Africa in these cables for uh, broadband and, and all of the stuff that's needed to build out uh, extended reality that, you know, it's being contained. It's being contained in technology. Um, they may not be developing uh, steel mills, but um, yeah, Africa is being developed in very specific ways. And then uh, this is from the guy with the thorium reactors, uh, specifically talking about fission energy in Africa, a vision for 2050, and uh, pr promoting this new paradigm of industrial growth with integrated industrial zones powered by molten salt reactors for Africa specifically. So yeah, Af Africa is on tap for this next gen nuclear for sure. And um, yeah, I guess this is mostly, uh, I think I'm mostly done. This is the, the hopeful conclusion uh, for uh, of this, <laughs> a much longer analysis of their one hour interview. Uh, but here they're, they're making just a second pitch that like maybe RFK Jr. will be the man to deliver uh, the next gen nuclear program. And I, I guess I guess we'll see, you know, just remember from from this uh, documentary, he said, uh, I am for nuclear power if we can make it economic and safe. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how what the timing is on that. So I'm just going to run this last clip. Yeah, even though I'm not as I'm not as optimistic as Elon Musk, who I still I still really don't trust. But that being said, I, do I don't totally either. support everything else you said about that. And I do hope that yeah. maybe for this particular generation, this, uh, this of, of um, oligarchical auxiliaries and their mediocrity, maybe for them it might be hopeless to find redemption, but maybe their, their grandkids might have an opportunity to learn, be, be in a trade school and learn some real world plumbing skills. Uh, or operate 10 robots in 10 different Walmarts. And participate yeah. in something useful that their grandparents and great-grandparent oligarchs were not, were not allowed to tap into and be human, which I really do I have faith that this is, this is ultimately where we're going as well, because <laughs> Well, I still have faith. So that's the one thing that we, we do agree on is that I, I'm still hopeful. Yeah, the universe is, is all, by all intents and purposes, I agree with you, the universe is anti-entropic. I totally agree with you. I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of LaRouche. What he said made a lot of sense. I'm a fan of, of Max Planck, of Vernaski, of Mendeleev, of uh, Benjamin Franklin, and they all speak about a creative living universe and I agree. I like that idea of a creative living universe. As, as something that they both have faith, but also reason in that animates their identities and planning and their own personal creativity because they see themselves made in the image of a living creative universe. And I, I like that. I, I would agree with that. The, the fruits of that identity is a lot of damn creativity that the oligarchy despises. And it, I think they, the oligarchy doesn't despise it. I think they want to channel it into their ant computer. It always allows us to leap beyond the limits of growth. Every time we do it and we do it well, we can get better at it. JFK definitely tapped into that source. I think his brother was definitely tapped into that source. Whether or not Bobby Kennedy, I think who might have like one foot in the source and one foot in a bit of a dark age uh, bucket. Um, hopefully you can get that foot out of the dark age bucket and both firmly planted into the source. Um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll. Oh, I don't, maybe I didn't play this one. Let me see. This is, uh, and time, oh, I think I didn't play this one yet. 
Let me try. Let me try this one. And let me be clear about something else, too, is that I think that he emerged um, not just out of thin air because he's a good guy, but because we created that space for him. I think Rage Against the War Machine was a huge step in that direction to show. This is talking about making space for him to be anti-imperialist. Oh, that there are Americans that are want literally want to work together despite their political, their quote unquote political differences to save the country and stop going to war. And I think we created the space for uh, Bobby Kennedy to emerge as a candidate with that line. Um, and I think we should take credit for that. Um, and, you know, I, it's encouraging that he's pushing that. And I, I want to push him even further to say, you know what, closing Indian Point was uh, the worst thing I ever did, and I feel terrible about it, and we're going to open 10 new nuclear plants to make up for it in my first year as president. I don't know. Um, I, don't, I, I don't have high hopes for that happening, but that would be great, right? And I think if, if again, if we, if we, the people, push for that, that's the thing is people think politics is all about picking your favorite guy who's going to do the right thing. We have to make room for them to say that thing. We have to create a populist mandate for them to then say, oh, I want to win. So I'm going to say the thing that people want to do. Right. Um, so yes. we just have to. Right. Yeah. All right. So, again, I guess. He's hoping that RFK Jr. will be the candidate, that they will make the space to promote the next-gen nuclear uh, program. So I guess we will just see how it goes, right, guys? Um, so thank you for hanging with me for this really long adventure. Um, you know, I just want, want to close out. This was the article that they were talking about, the space commune, RFK Jr.'s destructive environmental record. It was uh, a pretty light critique, uh, all things considered. and. You know, just to sort of contrast uh, the viewpoints, this idea of, um, you know, that their their viewpoint, my viewpoint, a parasitic elite versus uh, a Dow blockchain government system, uh, Davos villains versus mostly unknowing participants, <laughs> uh, a fascist Gaia fascist Gaia worship versus SDG Sustainable Development Goal Impact Finance and Token Engineering. Uh, focusing on decarbonization versus looking at Web3 human and natural capital. Uh, focusing on depopulation versus agents in the ant computer. Uh, focusing on Malthusian eugenics versus optimization eugenics. Um, focusing on a Cold War threat versus the emergence of biophysics and radioisotopes and weaponized space and track, track and trace technology. Um, a focus on cheap nuclear energy versus concerns about a decentralized energy economy with built-in cybernetic nudges. And this idea of a belt and road world peace with industrial development versus uh, risers east-west unification and a world brain noosphere de dematerialization. But in the end, I agree with, with Matthew Eret that there is hope and we don't live in a closed system, so there's a lot of possibility. So anyway, thank you everyone for, uh, for this presentation. I hope it made sense and will help you think a little bit more about next-gen nuclear and smart villages and socio-technical systems.